Passing Dimes is over the moon to partner with BetStamp. BetStamp is a mobile app in the sports betting space that shows you the odds from every sports book in one spot. Do you enjoy betting on the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, World Cup, or more? With BetStamp, you can compare the best available odds at one sportsbook versus the worst odds at another sportsbook all in one place. Go to the App Store today and download BetStamp for free and use code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S. For a limited time, BetStamp is offering you, a friend of the show, an opportunity to learn more about BetStamp and several sportsbooks where you can get an edge in online sports betting. Message the Passing Dimes Instagram or Facebook account for more information. Hello everyone, once again we are changing it up with a best of episode. As a friend of the show, we'd love to hear from you. Who did you like? Who did we leave out? And who would you love to see on the show in the future? Stay excellent everybody. Dave Preston, episode 55. How would you manage the goal setting with your team? Like obviously um, you guys have been successful and put a ton of athletes on the national team. Is that something that's talked about from day one that Steve Marr enters as a first year and says, I want to be a national team player? Or is there uh, another buzzwords in sport right now is like the process that you just do something every day versus we're not going to talk about winning championships or, or playing at the Olympics, right? So how would you manage those two things? Yeah, not everybody in our team thinks that they're going to be a pro, but everybody's going to be held to the same account. So that's the standard. Uh, if if you're going to play for McMaster, then this is the standard of which you will be held to, whether you want to play pro or not. There's a lot more transferables than just passing and serving and, and hitting and blocking. So understanding how to be a good teammate, understanding how to, you know, uh, other things that will translate into the arena you will go to next, whether that's volleyball or business or grad studies. So the term I use is next level ready. Uh, my job is to make sure that every one of our student athletes is next level ready. If that's pro, if that's national team, great. Then they know what they need. And if that's going to be business or grad school, then they know what they need. And we're going to focus on each one of the individual athletes. So everybody's got their own agenda. But we meet three times a year as a, as a coach to player. And we go over that kind of stuff of, hey, where are you at? What do you want to do? Some guys think they want to play pro until they actually have to do what work is required to yeah. become a pro. And they're like, yeah, you know what? Um, we're good. I'm, I'm, I'm good after collegiate. We're, we're done with that. Um, so everybody is different. I have to kind of assess that, but it doesn't change the standard of which they're held to account. And that means if you're going to play here, here's how hard we're going to work. You're either in or you're not. And if you're not, that's okay. But if you're in, whether you're going to be a pro or not, this is what we're going to push to. Uh, and just to circle back to your really good point about technical tactical volleyball there, um, I, again, I, I could be off base as an outsider here, but it looks like you're not married to a system where some years, you know, Santonio was dominant, uh, Santonio, excuse me, was dominant in the middle, so you ran a lot of middle. When you had Mar, obviously, like wing-based stuff. So it doesn't look like you have a max system and you're plugging people in. It looks like you're willing to adjust. So how would you help like a high school or a club level coach identify, this is what we can do technically, therefore this is what we can do tactically, and that creates our system versus opening up a binder that says, you know what, I saw Mac, they ran a lot of pipe-based offense last year, so I, I want to do that with my team, right? Like, yeah, I think that's a trap, eh? Um, it, it, it's, it, I, I have to, having been around the game now long enough to see what the great teams are doing, the, the skill isn't to observe what they're doing. The skill is to observe what they're doing and say, how does that work for us, right? And how, how, could, I, how, could, we do, how could we do that? And so I'm glad to hear that you recognize that because I, you know, I understand the game of volleyball, but I also understand 
our, our roster. And this is what we got. And sometimes our system will change based on personnel. Like, you know, the system that I wanted to play all first half was not the system we were able to play because we had seven guys down. So we had to, we had to change things a little bit. And um, sometimes that requires a, a guy picking up a little bit more than they want to in certain areas. But uh, yeah, I'm, I, I know, I know better than to try and fit a square peg and do a round hole. I, I know our guys. That's what I study on. And now what system would work best to use our strengths the most, right? That competitive matrix of trying to exploit the opponent's weaknesses and, and minimize their strengths and, and the same with ours, right? Employ our strengths as much as possible and minimize our weaknesses. And as long as that matrix is, is intact, then I think we're okay. And I really don't care how we do it. I just make sure that we do it as best as we can. Now, I think Ontario fans, uh, we've been spoiled a little bit with the success that Ontario's had at the national tournament where before you guys started doing it, I think we'd have to circle back to like when Orist was at U of T and I think Howie Grossinger bragged that he, you know, had the, the last esports medal before you guys did. So what would you credit to Ontario, uh, not only getting to that level again, but also being able to maintain it and have success that, you know, we go to nationals and it's not an upset when we win a quarterfinal anymore. Like it's, it's almost expected. Um, yeah, well, I would say first the development system underneath, like some clubs are doing a great job of developing young athletes, right? And, um, if the, if the scholarship situation were different in Ontario, we'd probably be able to keep even more athletes here. Um, but I think we're doing a, a, a real good job at the developmental level, the OVA and their, and their team mode blacks and reds and the high performance programs that they're putting together and. The, the high performance clubs that are out there that have now have strength conditioning base to them and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're, we're just producing better athletes. So there's more of them. So now when we get, they get to the a good university program, uh, there's not as many gaps anymore. And so we we've narrowed it. Now we haven't been able to break through. So I don't think that this job is, is done by any stretch of the imagination. We haven't bridged anything. We're closer. Um, but you know, there, there's still some steps that we want to take. So, by no means am I or I think any other coach sitting back saying, okay, well, this, this is kind of where we wanted to be. We wanted to be competitive. We're not there yet. So I do think that uh, the, the talent level for sure, um, but just the opportunities that we talked about of trying to mesh it with as many competitive uh, matches as we can get, whether that's south of the border or the, the best teams in the country, uh, trying to get as many high-performance competitive opportunities as we can with the best athletes. I think that's going to suit you for success later on when you when you really want to win those matches. Definitely, and I'm glad you mentioned the clubs because yeah, it seems like there are a lot more who it's not just high performance on a t-shirt. They actually live it and they, they do a lot oh, of nice absolutely. things. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Um, just anecdotally, I've noticed it, Mac. A first year between a fourth year, like they're putting on some positive weight. Like Andrew <laughs> Richards came in and he he was a kid, right? He left, he was a grown man, right? Like there's a lot of examples like that, right? Um, what is the S&C system here? Are, are you kind of prescribing the schedule and saying, this is when we have a taper, so I need the guys fresh, this is when we can go heavy, or are you guys working together and are they kind of providing both? Um, I know your listeners can't see this, but this is my, my YPI, uh, my yearly planning index, and it, there's nothing that happens here by accident. So uh, our strength conditioning staff here with Ben Barami and Zach Keltoff is unbelievable. And uh, I've got a really good staff um, that we meet every Monday right after our leadership meeting. I have an IST meeting. So our integrated services team meets every Monday as well. And we go through a roster rundown of, all right, number one, David Doty. 
Where is he at academically? Where is he at in the weight room? Where is he at in the physio room? Where is he at? Every Monday we do 1 to 19 and we go right through, we monitor their jumps, we know how much energy they're using in games, how much energy they're using in practices. Um, we're, we're doing as much as we can to help our athletes be optimal when they need to be the best. Um, so sometimes that is, you know, laying off the weights a little bit, but that's in conjunction with me, Ben and Zach. We all make those calls along with Carly, our, our head therapist. And sometimes there's an academic level to it as well. So there's a number of layers to a student athlete and their development. Uh, it's my job to make sure that this map is in place, but there's a lot of drivers behind this on this map. So um, I'm very fortunate here at McMaster that it's not a one man show. There's there's a lot of people behind this, and uh, and thankfully, you know, I think the athletes benefit from that. So with their input, you're not afraid to veer the plan a little bit where like you started make this roadmap at the start of the year, but it sounds like every Monday you could make a small adjustment here or there when needed, right? Oh, absolutely. You have to almost. Um, again, when you have seven injuries in, a, in the first half of the season, staying on that plan could have been detrimental. Like we, we could have hurt people had we had tried to stay on that. So we had to. In fact, we saw it firsthand where we, we were managing our training so much that we were starting to lose our competitive edge um, because we were managing our volume so much just because our roster was so limited. So we had to really monitor that and then flip the switch to say, okay, enough here. We, we need to compete and we need to bring that back. Um, those were not easy weeks. In fact, those were probably three of our toughest weeks where we really had to watch our training volume but really try and move our competitive uh our competitive level forward so uh, that, that was a challenge for us but i think we did it pretty successfully so uh, once again just for the the club coach or the high school coach listening they might be saying you know all those things are, are great we just said dave but I, I have a staff of one person and a parent mm -hmm. volunteer um what would you suggest to a club coach? Because the, the coaching certification is shifting that way where everybody's got to have a seasonal plan and kind of pull from it. Um, what do you look for to make adjustments? You mentioned injuries are a big one or academics, like they should probably pay attention to their high school season when their athletes are going to have a big load that way. What would you maybe suggest for highlight tournaments where the OVA model is very competitive where you can be relegated, right? So I might say I want to win provincials and I'm going to build towards that, but I still have to take care of the tournament in November, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you identify like what a key event is and, and what's, what success is maybe if it's not winning that, that gold medal in that, that time of the season? Yeah, well, there's two things to that. First, I think the first thing is you work from the back, and you work, you know, from the back and then uh, and go to present day. So, where do we want to be in at nationals in May, and then you work back from there. Um, so, I, I think it's easier to do that when you're trying. Then you're trying to, you know, let's peak by Friday. That, that that's always a trap. So if you have a plan, okay, where do we want to end up in nationals? Where do we want to end up in provincials? Where do we want to, and you start to work back that way, right? And then you get to present day. And um, I don't think that there's any um, one formula that you can do. I think there's an, going to be a number of areas. So the, the, the criteria that we look at is physical, technical, tactical, mental, right? So you have to be physically capable, and we'll talk about this at the coaching symposium uh, in our presentation. But you've got to be physically capable of handling the technical volume so you can perform the tactical systems so you can be mentally confident enough to win when it matters the most. Physical, technical, tactical, mental. So if you want to be there in May, then when are you going to do your physical training? When are you going to do your technical 
components? When are you going to do your system-based stuff? And then when are you just going to focus on your competition level, right? So the, that physical, technical, tactical, mental can help you guide of saying, look, maybe that tournament in November, it might cost us a little bit. But if we don't lay those foundations down physically in that before that, then we won't get to where we want to get to in November or in, in sorry, in uh, at nationals. So you got to, there, sometimes there's costs, sometimes there's not. The difference for us, Josh, is quite honestly, every one of those athletes in that team or in that club is going to be at a different point in that spot. Some may not need as much physical development, and some may require more technical. And some might be technically fine, but they need way more physical work. That's where that one person can make those assessments. I don't think it's fair that you treat everybody the same. I think it's fair that everybody gets what they need. That's different. So somebody might be getting way more reps in practice because they need them. And somebody might be doing a lot more push-ups in practice because they need them. So I don't think it's fair that everybody does the same. I think it's fair that everybody gets what they need. So that's kind of the way I define it. And then we kind of work from, okay, here's where we want to go. Let's work back. Uh, I've taken a lot of your time. That did spark one more question. I, <laughs> I was lucky to be in Gatineau and Dan Lewis is actually big on that where he mentioned like little things like uh, if the left sides are doing 20 passing reps, he wants his liberos to do 40 because they're not doing the same, right? Um, I think that's easier said than done though when you're coaching club kids and how does, how come Dave got to do the drill twice and I only got to do it once for four yeah. minutes? Like, is it just a communication thing or how do you get people to buy into those little things? Because I think as a coach, it makes sense until you're in the gym and, and you're breaking hearts or you're ranking people or you're giving people different challenges, right? Yeah, I think that's where that comes down to trust, right? And when you can look... Uh little Susie in the eye and say, look, honey, the reason why she's getting this is because that's what she needs. And the reason why you're doing this is because this is what you need. Are we on the same page here? Like, do, do you believe that uh, I'm accurate with that and have them, they don't need to buy in if it's theirs. <laughs> they own their own development. They already, they've already bought it. It's theirs. So you're just facilitating their development. You don't have to sell it to them. When you get into positions where you're trying to sell somebody that this is what's good for them, you're probably barking up the wrong tree already. But if they know that this is what they need and they are bought in, so to speak, then it's a lot easier to facilitate that. So I think anytime you're trying to sell something, you're in for a world of hurt. Ask the guys who show up on my front door that are trying to sell me. It's, that's not working out that well for them. But if I know I need it, I'm going to go find it. And so now my job is to make sure that whenever those young student athletes ask i've got some answers and some provision to, to get what they need yeah it sounds like you really walk it right where i think trust isn't just like a sign we put up on the wall and say this is what we're about like that, that's something you have to be pretty consistent with right like it doesn't you're not afraid to have the tough conversation but that's the foundation that says you know what this is why this is happening today josh and that's why andrew got this right like, yeah yeah and yeah tr trust doesn't mean i say to our guys all the time we can be friendly but we may not be friends Right. It's, it's hard to take an athlete to that limit. It, it just is. You know, if I'm going to be in your grill when you don't really want to be pushing for that last extra rep, it's going to be hard. And you got to believe that I'm doing it for the right reasons. I'm not doing this to pad my resume. I'm doing this because this is what's best for your development. And sometimes they get there and they go, I don't want to do this anymore. Okay. But then you can't say that back on Monday and go, oh, well, I didn't get this wait a minute, you can't, you can't play both sides of that. Either this is what it's going to take and we're going to do it, or this is what it's going to take. You're not going to do it, but that negates the rest of that conversation. 
fair. And, and so, yeah, you're right. If you don't have that trust, those difficult conversations, they can go sideways in a hurry. But if the principles are in place of respect and honesty and trust, then I think those conversations are understood. May not always be liked, but at least understood. John May, episode 105. Nice, nice. And to shift to your, to your coaching career, so obviously you work with Jamie and Christina, you work with Mark and John, you work with Crush, and anyone who's been around you coaching, like the, the same words seem to cop up, uh, come up Excuse me, with confidence, the will to win, belief, clutch. Does it matter to you if you're coaching a 14-year-old team or a team trying to go to the Olympics? Like these are the pillars that if you're going to be coached by John May, these are the things that you come back to, that it's it's not always technical, tactical, that you're a big guy on, on treating confidence like it's a skill and that's something you focus on and try to build? Yeah, like 100%. Uh, no, and it doesn't matter. You know, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, misunderstanding is a word or or... Uh, difficulty in in making commitments to winning um, because it's too aggressive or puts too much pressure on people or or whatever. I, you know, I look at it. I look at it differently. I, I, I look at it that um, you know, I, I truly look at striving for success more so as a a value proposition like I think it I think we're given this life we're, we're blessed with life and I think it's almost a it should be a commandment if, if there were such that you should you know do your best and if you're playing sport well the reason you play sport other than the health you know the pure health benefits of exercise and you know fun to play and all that that's all incorporated into winning like it, it's part and parcel of winning that's why there's scores i know there's some strategies now to make a decision to not keep score because you know that turns people off well no that's what turns people on you're keeping score <laughs> you know it's it's your own personal measurement and it develops confidence to be able to understand losing. Like, of course you're gonna lose if you're keeping score. You're not gonna win all the time. The, the strategy is to win at the right times. And the strategy is to, you know, learn from your your losses. You know, there's, there's the confidence is fragile, right? All of us, you know, it's not a, it's not a consistent, you just have to keep uh, reminding yourself that you know you're you're great and and find your greatness and, and strive for it. Not be afraid to make commitments like yes, I'm going to win uh, because if if you're not going to win, then why are you why are you keeping score? Why are you why are you doing? And um, I think it's a I think it, it's a, it's a it's a a given benefit to what we have it's that it's that simple nothing to be afraid of nothing to be afraid of so a lot of people are afraid of it uh, i'm not now it might be revisionist history at this point with how successful crush was but in speaking to like garrett and michael denton 
the first tournament those guys won was provincial. So that they went through a whole season of of being competitive but not getting the job done, right? So how would you explain to a coach or a player that you navigated that situation? Because I think it's easy to have confidence when you're doing well, like you said, but here's a moment where you're building this team and you're you know, treating confidence like a skill and you're training it, but they're not getting the result at the end of the day. So how did you navigate that situation where it's going to pay off, it's going to pay off like that faith-based or that building confidence yeah. when they didn't have the medals? Well, you, you, everybody writes their own story, right? Like we all, um, we're, we're, we're all authors and we're all directors of our own movies, our, our life movies, right? So you should be building your story to have, you know, multiple, you know, endings. You got to be prepared to, to, you know, you're, you're the author. You're writing it. You're directing it. You're living it. And you know, so I guess you're referring to the the fourteen U thing that you're the, the the first provincial championships that Crush ever won. There was a team out of London that was just, you know, physically way way you know like it was like boys against men in a sense they were all six foot two and and they won i think they won every tournament and then there was everybody else so we established ourselves that you know we're going to be the best for sure of everybody else and we're going to be ready when the opportunity comes to beat them and that was the story and and we stuck to the story like we were undying in building the belief in the story and therefore it was contagious the parents the kids uh, everybody associated with that team had to start to listen and believe the story and that was important because you know if the parents aren't part of that story and their influence on their kid and so on and so forth, like it was, it's, it's, it's a, it's an environment that you create that everybody's got to get on board with because that's it. And, and you're only as good as, as those doubters, right? So you can't have people stealing your dream and you can't have people being, you know, uh, not believing or not supporting it. So you, you have to encourage the belief. You have to cultivate it. Like every day, every day you're with these kids, you know, and, and every day when you're not with these kids, they have to, you know, have some, some uh, established belief system. You know, we created, uh, and by accident, I created these four pillars of crush, right? Two that were technical and two that were what I would consider mental, right? And the two technical ones in the sport, everybody would say the two most important skills are probably serving and passing. You know, your show is called Passing Dimes. You've got to pass and you've got to serve. So if you can serve and you can pass and you're the best at those two things, you're going to be the best. That's a given. So those two pillars, every kid that ever played a crush would know serving and passing were the key, and the other two are your ability to focus and then your and, and awareness. Those are the four pillars for crush. Now they're out there now, it's public, but those four were the pillars, and every kid that came to crush knew the pillars. You know, serving and passing, 
focus awareness. Now, everybody in volleyball knows serving and passing, and everybody in volleyball has heard the words focus and awareness, but focus and awareness are actually opposites. Like, can you focus on something and then be completely aware of everything else? Well, that's a challenging skill, which when you start to be able to master that, you can zone in, but then you can be aware of what's going on around you. You can be aware of your opponents. You can be aware of your teammates. You can be aware of things. So they were, they were sort of, they were pillars for sure, but they were, they were words that helped us create anchors for that belief in the winning mentality that was going to happen. So we had told the story about beating that team in the final at the provincials. I couldn't tell you, maybe a hundred times. And, you know, Aaron Cadu, who worked with me and great friend and, and great partner in our growth and all those things. You know, I can remember today like it was yesterday when we won that and we looked at each other and it was like, it, it was that profound, Josh, that it just came true. And I've seen that repeated many times. Like I told Garrett he was going to be the best in the world from the time he could hear, I think. So when's that? And, you know, when he won the world championships with Sam, it was, it was surreal, but it was expected, certainly by him. Um, so I think that establishing belief with Crush, I can't say every single individual had that mentality of belief in, in what Crush was capable of, but the majority of the guys that came through that, and then it attracted those guys that were super talented, but maybe didn't have that, right? And then they started to just want to be part of it. Lucas Coleman, as an example. Uh, Steve Marr, you know, came to Crush because he wanted that winning mentality. Now, of course, he didn't want to tap in so much to the environment as he did want to play with, at that time, what he perceived as his friends and, and the best players. But it was an evolution of the belief that, that was attracting these people that wanted a, a piece of that. And, you know, uh, I'll somewhat say it was an accident you know, what Crush was. But, you know, Crush was just that. It was a disciplined commitment to winning. And it was, you know, we were uh, unapologetic about it. And, you know, it was, it was, um, it was a philosophy and, and it was an environment that was created that established a belief and then that, you know, was multiplied by attracting all these great players. Like Garrett's age group, the 92s, if you will, the 1992 guys, were a bunch of guys from Birch Mountain High School where Garrett went. And, and you know, they, they started out at Birchcliff, the school. And so they were, they were you know, they had a, a different talent pool, still a lot of great people. And, and great families. I can remember the families being completely on board with this thing. So, you know, Crush, yeah, it was, 
It was spectacular. I'm not, you know, I've, I've rambled a bit here, but I can't. I'm not sure what you, uh, what your specific question was uh, about Crush. But I, you know, when I think about it, it was a, you know, a tremendous experience, certainly for me and our family. But uh, you know, a lot of people were touched by that, and a lot of great, you know, athletes, volleyball athletes, came through there. And how are you linking this to training? Again, to, to name drop Marquise when he came on the show, he felt he was really good at applying an action to this belief, whether it was the the ability to get up in the morning and train or the secret workouts, or even when he's doing you know his weightlifting, he was going to be clutch at weightlifting. He was going to attach that to these moments, right? So we, we've already talked about the confirmation moments, whether it be winning a tournament or beating a certain team, but what are you doing in training to build to those moments? So when the opportunity's there, you can take advantage and be you know, confident, you can be clutch, and you can have belief that you're going to get it done, right? Yeah, I think when you're applying that to training, I, I, I think it's, you know, training is, is, is working, right? Like it's, it's and, and I try to create um, an environment that, you know, establishes the challenge of striving to win, I guess. Um, the pressure that comes with it. You know, Mark, Mark, he's, He's a unique individual, you know. He he's been inspired by, you know, his dad. He grew up, you know, knowing that, um, you know, his dad was an Olympian, you know, uh, and and a driven worker uh, as far as athletics go. So Mark had that foundational, I guess, uh, influence, and I can't. You know, take much credit for Child and Keith, to be honest with you, other than I did create that domestic tour that they played on and that I did play against them many times and challenge them to win. And and I guess to a certain extent, by the environment that we created with the Labatt tour, you know, had a similar philosophy, right? It was about winning. It was about striving. It was, you know, all those things. So... But he's, you know, he's morning mindful notes and those things that he did, you know, out of a training session, you know, he, he had some great influencers, you know, he had uh, JP Polifry, who was a, a motivational speaker that Hernan brought into the mix, Hernan Humana, you know, who first started coaching them, um, brought some discipline and leadership and international maturity as far as the sport goes to them and which i think added a great amount of value he wasn't a beach guy but he was just a solid person and there to support you know their discipline of going and getting the job done at the olympics uh, which they which they did but i think foundationally when you're training in a training session or when you're creating an environment where people are going to be part of, whether that's a, a national team or whatever, you have to establish some principles and not be afraid to say, hey, we're going to win. And, it, you know, I think that's the key to it. So every session becomes that. Every session becomes a competition uh, and you continue to strive yourself, in, in my opinion. I think that, you know, I can remember some unique experiences with when I was coaching John and Mark, the dynamic between John and Mark when I took over coaching was John was great. If Mark could only be as good as John, then the team would be good. 
So, <laughs> or the team would, you know, be able to get to the next level. Now, that was an environment that just evolved. You know, the, the pressure was all on Mark because he was getting most of the serves, if not all of them. And, you know, he had to deliver. So he it had come to a place where, you know, he himself was like, oh, and, and child is, you know, like, we, we just have to face the truth here. You're going to get served. So I said to Mark and to John, to a certain extent, I said, I'm not even really going to focus on John. Mark, I'm going to focus on you so that you're ready. And I guarantee you that the tables will turn at some point. That you will get, you'll, and, and that's, that's what your goal is, is to be so great that John's getting every serve or that to push these teams to go away from you at some point. You know what? And, and Mark was my focus. And to a certain extent, I became part of Mark's belief system. So if I was in his corner and he knew I was there, that gave him the added belief that he was going to get to that place. And I think you have to, you have to establish that. As soon as the, a team doesn't believe their coach is that, then they need to fire the coach. Like the coach needs to get out of the kitchen because if the athlete doesn't believe the coach is the be-all, end-all, then you're just wasting time because the coach is a, a fundamental part of the belief system. Like you just can't have a coach. If you don't really believe in your coach, then either you got to change your mind quick or change coach, like period. So, you know, um, and, and I did that for Heath. Uh, and I did that for Jamie and Christina. And unadmittedly, I probably did that for Garrett and Reed and, and a lot of those guys in Crush. Uh, not to say that I was necessarily a better coach than the next guy, but if all the athletes believe that and then everybody else believes that, then that's going to help you get some points. So I think that, you know, Heath is training techniques or what you do in practice, I think just all have to fundamentally point back to the same is striving to establish the belief. Christine Biggs, episode 210. Nice. So to kind of circle back, because this perked up my ears a little bit when you're talking about uh, overdoing the theory, because I think as coaches, we all fall into that trap, whether it's, uh, you know, it's proven if the athlete learns it intrinsically that it's going to stay and perform better, but that doesn't mean you don't give feedback and plant ideas in the athlete's head sometimes or, or like give them the answer sometimes. So uh, I'm curious through your own education, but then also being in the gym and going through the grind a little bit, is there any other theories that you're kind of like, oh, I tried this and it just blew up in my face or something where you see other coaches maybe not abuse it is the right word, but not applying it correctly. Like, is there anything that stands out in your mind, whether it's, you know, the motor learning or growth mindset are, are really peaking right now? I'm curious, is there anything that you've tried and you're like, man, in class, this sounded so good, but it's not working for me right now. Oh, man. Oh, that's, that's an on-the-spot question. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think, like, honestly, I think this is, this is what, where my brain goes to from this question, is I feel like everything that we do has pros and has unintended consequences. So I think like you're going to like, no matter what you're applying, I always feel like 
you're, you're moving in the direction that you want to move or like you gain this advantage, but then something else becomes a new problem because of that advantage you've gained or because of, so I think it's just like, for me anyways, a, a, a really like trying to keep broad awareness of what else is happening and not just kind of coasting on like, okay, I've applied this growth mindset and now we're all happy and we're growing and we're growing and now we're not competing. Like it's just having eyes on like, so what's next? So what's now the problem? And like continuing to try to solve the new problems. There are, there are never no problems. <laughs> and they're never problems their only solution no i think i think that's kind of the the piece for me it's just always having an eye out for unintended consequences and then what are the new solutions for those things and how would you suggest somebody navigate that because i think one thing that got overblown was uh in the nba the philadelphia 76ers were all about oh it's a process guys it's a process which basically gives you this illusion that you have time and that there's going to be next year where again you don't fire up or you don't think you have to get it done now or you like you risk like you said not competing right so uh, how would you kind of handle those situations where yes we're going to encourage learning and we want everybody to get better but at the end of the day it's still a sport and we're keeping score and we want you to compete and perform like is there a difference between performing and learning for you or do you try to combine it in your gym oh i I definitely think that there's i definitely think that there's a difference um and there's there's certainly like elements of a practice or a training block where it it's like error based like we are expecting mistake after mistake after mistake because we're asking people to completely change something or to do something in a way they've never done them before so i think um, you know, defining those things and, and trying to communicate that to the group um, so that they know when it's okay for <laughs> things to get really ugly for a while and then when it's time to dial in. And, um, you know, we talk about, we, I mean, we, we talk about it, we have drills to kind of support those types of things of like, you know, you you make a mistake at this point and we're going back to 20 or, you know, there's there's elements of, the training environment where you can teach uh, more of like a risk style of a risky style of play or an aggressive style of play um, versus a controlled style of play. And I think a a lot of it is building self-awareness in athletes. Um, But yeah, I, I I think there's definitely a tightrope in terms of like the learning process if you're too soft in that and like you're letting things go because it's like, you know, everyone's learning, there's going to be mistakes. It's keeping other things or holding, holding athletes accountable and holding staff accountable to other things like intention and focus and um, those other pieces that I don't know, sometimes performance, you know, performance drops and, and it could drop for a variety of reasons. Is it dropping because we're learning something new and because we haven't mastered a skill or is it dropping because we know it's okay for us to make mistakes and so intention is lower or um yeah, those those types of things. So I think just having a keen eye on those those things and and building that culture where it's understood this is the time to go and, and this is the time to like explore and <laughs> play around with something new. 
And, and have you found a way to measure that in your gym? Cause again, to touch on some theory, like uh, challenge point, I think is, is crept into a little bit of the mainstream and you read some articles and they think, Oh, like two thirds, the athlete should fail, but they also shouldn't be too successful because then they're bored. But if they only succeed, maybe two out of 10 times, they're going to be frustrated and they're not going to learn. Right. Where uh, I think there is times for an athlete to only be able to do something very complex, maybe three at a time, three at a 10, excuse me. And they're going to be bad for a while. And maybe they're going to get to five and they're going to stay there a while. Like uh, I think that's an example of sometimes the theory doesn't match what's happening in your gym but how have you found a way to balance like the challenge point versus maybe you're giving them eight weeks to learn this skill and they want to learn it today right so they're fighting to get better now and you're kind of like ah, we can wait on this but yeah intention and focus need to be up like how do you fight the battle between those things yeah well i think the the other thing is like looking at the process and and what is what is short term and what is long term because i think like where my where my brain went when you're asking about that is like a first year athlete, like an athlete might be a two out of 10 in their first year in execution of a skill. Um, but I'm okay with the two out of 10 because by their second, third year, we need them to be a six out of 10 in a skill. So it's almost like, and, and I think in new sport, it, it's a little different because we've got athletes typically in our programs for four to five years. If you look at red shirts, sometimes six COVID six, seven, um, hopefully never again, six, seven, as much as we love those athletes. But, um, yeah, I think like long-term can be, you know, we're going to give this a month and so we're okay. But long-term can also be like, this is a two year thing. Like this athlete needs to develop the strength. They need to develop the confidence that like, there's so many pieces, um, especially looking at women developing from high school like they're coming in as 17 year olds and leaving at 23 like that is a massive amount of change that can occur at that time and so if someone's not successful as an 18 19 20 year old and they're made to feel accountable because they haven't gotten it yet then we're limiting you know women that could be on the national team i think like i i think there's there's still so much growth to happen and maybe i'm biased in that way because i was so late to get things figured out um, but I, but I really believe that there's so much learning that's still taking place. Um, and, and I think it, it's reflective of, you know, the teams that, that were successful at, at nationals this year. Like you're looking at pandas with a lot of fourth, fifth, sixth year athletes. You're looking at Trinity had, I don't know what their makeup is as tightly because I didn't have those athletes that, like under my radar for a couple of years, but I know that they were uh, a more veteran lineup mount royal same thing a lot of fourth fifth sixth years um you know almost an identical lineup to what was slotted to be at nationals the two years before so um yeah there's just there's to me there's just so much um so much value in having the patience and kind of the stick with it on the development of things for women in the sport at at this age group like it's when we look at kind of like, well, 13 to 15, we want to develop these skills. But I, I really have believed because I've seen a lot of uh, people develop what they need really late compared to what I've heard other coaches. Kind of, you know, if they haven't figured it out by 18, they're not going to figure it out. I hate that. Like, I, I, re- I really hate that. So it's like stick with the process. Don't put people in boxes about where they're at and just all of a sudden demand performance because they're not done growing. They're not done learning. You know, I, I believe that at every age, but 
And I hear you describing this as a coach. I'm nodding my head a lot, but I'm curious, how do you present this to your team? Because there might be a situation where maybe athlete A gets a little bit of a pass or a little bit of long-term development, but maybe to me, like I, I'm getting chewed out a little bit of practice or I'm getting like told that I need to do more. I need to perform now because I'm a fourth year. Like, how do you describe where like we're doing the same skill and we're both equals on the team, but like you can be more demanding on a certain athlete based on their pathway. Like, how do you communicate that? So when you're in those heated moments that an athlete's like, oh, you're, you're treating me unfair because you're being harder on me than this athlete. Um, yeah, like I hope I'm not treating anyone unfairly, but I think for me, the standard of what's expected of someone is what they've proven they can do. So if, if I'm coaching Josh in the gym and I know that you're hitting your serve, your game serve eight out of 10 times, um, in a training environment, and then in a, in a match, you're hitting it four out of 10 times, that's when you're going to hear from me, right? You're not executing to the level that I know that, that you've proven that you can do time and time again. Um, so whether you're a first year or fourth year, I try to know what you're capable of. And I try to make sure that the standards are individualized to you and what you've proven to be able to do. And then we're always raising the bar, right? So it's like, now you've shown you can hit eight of 10, eight of 10 is a great range. Now we need to increase the pace on that server. We need to increase, decrease the, the target size. You need to be more meticulous with your targets. And so finding ways to increase and continually move the bar up um, based on how people are growing. And um, yeah, I think, you know, in, in a team of, you know, 14 to 20 players, sometimes everybody's going to be having these moments where they accelerate and, and they're going to have more stagnant moments, but it's like finding ways to challenge everybody to kind of perform at the level they're capable of and then push to that next level. So I think it's, I don't know what it's the saying. Is it not fair to you or equal is fair? I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Matt Kruger, episode 163. Hopefully you can let us in behind the curtain here because you guys won a national championship and that's awesome, but uh, not to be the, the pessimist, but that could have went the other way. You guys were living and dying by the sword. And I think you finished third in Canada West that year. Like it was when you guys were on, you were crushing laser beams and you guys were going to be all world. But there, like you said, there was times when you were missing serves. So what were the conversations like? Because I think as an old school volleyball coach, it's so tempting to go into a timeout and be like, oh, we're missing so many serves. But that wasn't your game plan. That wasn't your identity, right? So was there ever a moment in time where you guys are like, we need to abandon ship here. This is not going to work. Like, it sounds awesome and we want to be alphas and confident and go for it from the service line. But we're missing 12 serves a set right now and it's not going to work for us. Like, what was there ever a moment of doubt or were you guys so locked in that you're like, it's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to work. There was definitely a moment of doubt on my point of view. Uh, I'm the first person to admit it. And I bet the coaching staff would also admit that I was questioning uh, um, our serving tactics, but there wasn't really a point of doubt from the head coach. Um, I think that was super important. And it was more of, this is our style. This is how we're going to play. And maybe how we are providing those opportunities to learn in practice aren't the most efficient. So how can we change that? So we would go through and we would create different ways that we think is the most efficient way or what we could provide to the athletes that would increase their ability to serve in the game. And we would try and do that as much as we can. So one thing that I think is super important, something that a bunch of coaches um, 
I think need to incorporate a little bit more into their practicing is this external focus of attention. It's like if we want to hit the ball hard, if we want to hit the ball to a certain seam, if we want to hit the ball with a certain trajectory, we need to think about that while we are performing the action. If we're thinking about our toss, if we're thinking about the elbow high and snapping our wrist, that the chances of the ball going where we want it to go, it actually decreased. So we were really big on this external focus of attention. You need to visualize where the ball is going. You need to visualize the amount of spin or the amount of float that the ball has. You need to imagine the trajectory that the ball is going. And I think in every skill in volleyball, that's super important. And we can do that in every skill, but we tend to focus a little bit more on the internal cues and that tends to hurt our performance. That's where the choking comes into play. When we look at baseball and there's individuals who, as a pitcher, they get the yips or they start to choke because they can't hit the strike zone and they can't hit the pitch that they're doing. More often than not, their focus of attention is directly related to their body mechanics or an internal focus of attention. I need my elbow to do this. I need my follow through to do this. But I almost guarantee that when they're having the best pitching games of their lives or they're in the zone or they're feeling this flow, they're thinking more of what that ball is doing. How much is the curve ball spinning? Where is the target? They're thinking about those external factors. Um, so that was something that was super important to us that, hey, we're missing some serves. We're missing 12 to 15 to set at times. But if we keep that external focus, if we stay dialed in what we want that ball to do, ultimately in the long run it's going to pay off for us now it might be chicken or egg at this point but i'm curious do you remember was this something that carrie just super valued about his understanding and his tactical approach to volleyball that a carrie mcdonald coach team is going to just serve bombs from the baseline or was this something based on the personality you guys had like it you know what I mean? Like sometimes coaches, I, I think we get excited and we want to do something because that's what we believe in, but you don't have the horses. Obviously this one came together as a perfect storm and it worked, but uh, I'm curious what sparked what was it carries just uh, his passion for volleyball and, and serving so important, or was it because you had the horses and it was a good tactic to use? I definitely think both. Um, I think both can come into play and I feel like that's going to be my answers for a lot of your questions. So I apologize. <laughs> um, but I do think that both come into play. Um, I think, A, you can have good servers, and so you're going to ride that skill a lot. But I do think if a skill is super important to you, that if you provide an environment that allows the athletes to efficiently improve and perform with that skill, um, you're going to be okay. So I do think that um, we did have the servers pull off kind of that mindset but I do also think that we push that mindset a lot in practice and put them in the opportunities and in the drills and gave them the mindset to be able to achieve that topic of serving that we were pretty passionate about. Nice. And everything I've read and even like 
using this podcast for my own personal gain and getting guys like Tom Black on the show and asking about transfer. I'm curious, where do you stand on the issue? Because I remember reading something and I spoke to uh, Leonard Kropp, who's a, a beach coach here in Toronto. I used to coach the national team, used to be with the German program. And I remember reading something and it said that skill acquisition can take like over eight weeks for a youth athlete. And I was like, really? Eight weeks? And he just laughed and said, oh, at least. So going back to your earlier comment about like, sometimes we focus on what's not working versus what is working. Have you found or encouraged maybe some youth coaches or even what you do in your own coaching like how big is a training block and how much time are you willing to be patient with a skill that maybe something is going to take 12 weeks for for a younger volleyball player to pick up and you're okay with that totally i couldn't agree more um i think if we focus on the motor learning research it's going to take more time so if we're trying to push implicit learning we're trying to allow the athlete to learn something on their own or without their awareness of learning something without the instructions of how to do something that's going to take more time than it would be if we explicitly told an athlete exactly what to do. But if I tell an athlete exactly what to do, I firmly don't believe that they are actually learning that skill. They're just copying what you have told them to do. But copying something is really quick compared to learning something. And it's the same thing when it comes to block versus random. When we do a blocked drill when we're setting to position four over and over and over again we can calibrate exactly what we need to do but once we set that ball in the target and we have that calibration i can just copy that movement over and over and over again so that doesn't take much time to be able to calibrate what we need to do but if we make it random and we set a ball and we dig a ball and we serve a ball and then we come back in to set a ball now i don't have that calibration anymore So now I need to remember exactly what I had learned in order to make a successful step or even something as simple as setting to position four and then setting to position two and then setting a pipe and then going back to four. I can't just copy my calibration. I need to remember how to do something. And those rememberings and not being able to just calibrate something that takes time. So I think as coaches, sometimes we get very focused on practice needs to look perfect and we need to be able to do something very well in practice because if we can do it well in practice we can do it well in a game but i don't necessarily believe that doing something well in practice means that you can do it well in a game i think that we need to provide the opportunities for the athletes to struggle a little bit in practice to understand and teach themselves what is going on and that will transfer through a game But that thought and that um, execution of learning, it takes way more time. So we need to be okay with the athlete making mistakes. We need to be okay with the athlete not performing the skill properly because if that is happening, we are putting them in the correct situation to learn. Yeah, this is... This is awesome. So let's go there because this is one that I think I I see abused as as somebody who enjoys like being a learning facilitator and helping other coaches, but also like reflecting on my own. I love the concept and I'm, I'm all in on implicit learning, but where I see it being abused is I think some coaches think that's just playing a lot. And they're just going to play for the sake of playing where they think, oh, if the athlete figures it out on their own, it's going to be more powerful. Sure, I totally agree with that. But some athletes are not. So maybe you do need to encourage, hey, on this float serve, we're aiming halfway up the sideline. We want to get the passer on the ground because if we get them on the ground, their hitting percentage is going to drop 200 points or whatever the data says in those situations, right? So where does the balance for you come in between like – 
coaching and guiding the athlete for like the behavior you want to see versus implicit. Because like I said, some coaches think this is playing for the sake of playing and that stuff drives me bonkers. A couple points come to mind with that. I definitely think that there's a difference between um, like a learning mode and a performing mode. So when we are on court in a game and we're performing, our tactical feedback that we provide somebody is very explicit. So I'm not going to be an assistant coach on the sideline and an individual is serving and I'm going to be like, Hey, what do you think you should do here? Like, sure. That's great. And that's going to help their learning, but in a performance mode, it's also okay to be like, we need to serve short two right now because it's going to take the individuals out of their rotation. It's going to cause a little bit of a confusion and it's going to help us out. So it's okay to do that in performance mode as an, as a coach. But I think when we get into the learning mode, when we're trying to learn a new skill, there's a difference between the two. So when we're learning a skill, I think it's super important to be implicit. We want the individuals to be able to know how to perform the movement of high ball setting on their own, rather than me in a game telling them, I need you to use your legs, finish the target. Like we don't want to do that in a game. We want to talk more about strategy. And that's the performing mode. So I think we need to find the distinction between the two. Are we teaching an individual a new skill and how to perform a short serve? Or are we talking tactics and we need to decide what is going to be the best performance that we can give or the best performance feedback that we can give that allows the best outcome for our athletes? I think there's a huge difference between the two. And I also think that there's different levels of implicit learning. So if I look at the challenge point hypothesis, something that's pretty popular right now, the amount of information you are given correlates to the amount of learning that takes place. So if I'm a 14 year old and I've never played the sport of volleyball before, my challenge point is going to be a little bit lower than when I'm an 18 U athlete. When I'm an 18U athlete, maybe if I'm working on the skill of setting, I need to be in more game-like repetitions because I need my challenge point to be higher in order to give me the amount of information I need in order to improve. But if I put a U14 athlete in that same situation, the amount of information is completely overloading their brain, so then they won't be able to learn a new skill. So maybe we need to dial back the amount of gameplay that we do put them in a little bit more um, comforting situations that gives them the appropriate amount of information they need in order to improve that skill. So I definitely think it's very age, skill, and level dependent. But I do think there's a difference between learning and performing and what age you are depending on how challenging you need that practice or that drill to be. Can you... Give me an example of what uh, what language or feedback you're using. So let's let's give you some restraints here. So beach, let's do beach because we haven't even touched on new wave. Let's do beach. So let's say 14 new athlete learning how to handset for the first time versus a 20 year old athlete who's a provincial team level or higher. And you're, and you're still talking about hand setting. Like, uh, I like your explanation there. So maybe we're not talking about forward lean or what foots forward or what their hands are doing. And like you're, you're shifting to an external focus, but how are you introducing that both for like the, the development and the age of the athlete? 
they have never experienced the act of sending before, I do think we need to block rep that. And I think that we need to give them specific learning feedback on how to perform that skill. But once they have performed that skill um, and they know how to do it, I think we need to start to challenge them. So maybe that means we make them move on the court a little bit and still perform the action of setting. I'm very big on the idea of 60, 40, 70, 30, that you're failing 40 to 30% of the time. So if we can put them in a situation that allows them, I say allows in a positive way, that allows them to fail 30% of the time, I think we have gauged a, a, an appropriate amount of challenge for them. So maybe it's not from a, a serve and a pass and it's completely locked. That might be too tough for the developmental athlete, but how can we still use the specificity of volleyball to train a skill, but put them in a situation that they are failing 30% of the time? So I don't know if that answers your question, but I do firmly believe that if we are allowing the athletes to fail 30 to 40% of the time, that will allow the learning process to take place. Maybe when we come to performance, maybe we don't want them to fail 30 or 40% of the time, and that's okay, but that's a totally different part of practice compared to trying to teach somebody how to perform the path or the, the overhand set. Nice. Yeah. I like how you included that because I think when, when this hit in a big way that like random learning, like you were almost considered a bad coach if you did block training, but I totally agree with you. A new athlete needs to understand and feel and really like uh, in the volleyball Canada language, it's called a method one. And basically that's just like their relationship to the ball. And I think that's super important and gets overlooked a little bit that they can't, they can't do it at game speed until they understand what's being asked of them. Right. So I, I like how you go there and then go to your challenge point and then your, your feedback slowly turns into, external stuff once they understand kind of what's required and they don't need to do it well they don't need to be able to do it 10 at a time so they just need to have an understanding of what's required right and then you kind of build from there so this is all awesome stuff uh i am curious you keep mentioning learning and performing so let's say you're coaching like a high school or a club team are are you not learning the whole season or how are you dividing those into chunks and like how do you feel as a as a coach you're communicating that to the athlete that like Hey squad, it, it's time to perform. We're not learning anymore. Like, how do you get that mood to change? Totally. Um, I'm very big on letting the athletes know if we are in learning or performing mode. So if we're at the beginning or preseason, we're going to spend a little bit more time in the learning mode. This is how our systems work. This is how the skill execution needs to take place. And as the season progresses, we're going to get more and more into performing mode. But what I try and really explicitly state to the athletes is if myself as a coach, if I am doing a good job of putting you in the correct learning modes throughout practice, when it comes to the performing time, what you've learned should transfer. So I don't think that um, if we put individuals in a learning mode that all of a sudden we get to gameplay and it's gone. That means as myself, as a coach, maybe I haven't challenged you enough. So if I am trying to work on the skill of overhand setting, and if I put you through certain drills in practice, and then we get to straight up gameplay, which is the performing mode, and it doesn't transfer, I don't think that I have put you in enough situations 
that challenge your learning or that challenge your skill execution enough that allows it to transfer. Um, so I take great pride in that. And A, it might not happen right away. So there's no way that if you teach the skill of overhand setting on day one, that day one of performing mode when you're playing, it's going to transfer. That's not going to happen. I can almost guarantee you that. But it's the patience of understanding. I believe I have put them in the situations that it's going to transfer. It will happen in the later end of the season. But I do think that as coaches, we get caught up way too much in the performance side of things that I need you to set the ball into the target as consistently as you possibly can, because that means that when you get on the court, you're, you're going to perform at a higher rate. But I don't believe that. That means that you're putting the individual in a comfortable situation. If they can set nine out of 10 balls in the target, <clears throat> when it comes to learning mode, I don't think we're forcing or pushing them enough. If they set six out of 10 or seven out of 10, we're in that comfort zone. They're learning. They're expanding their brain plasticity. They're learning how to perform a skill at a rate that is uncomfortable for them. So we need to be able to push the learning mode into the six and sevens out of 10 so that when we do get to performance mode, we're able to um, perform at a higher rate than we normally would be able to. Derek F, episode 53. Uh, just to jump on one of your points there, because we did have TJ on the show and he kind of wowed us with how tactically he thinks of the game and how uh, to really slow him down as a setter. He said the team really needs to understand themselves because he likes to kind of look at their blocking scheme and kind of exploit them versus always worried about like his tendencies or what rotation they're in. Right. So what was he able to pass on to you to help you uh, tactically as a setter? Mm, a lot of our conversations were to do with uh the middle, the middle attack and how you can use different middle runs um, to set different things up um, and how you can manipulate blockers into gaps to open up gaps for other attackers. Um, that was one of the things that I noticed a difference this summer with the national team as opposed to coming from Trinity was the, the prevalence of the middle attack as opposed to the pipe attack. It's, it's still there and still used, but it's not as... Trinity, we love our middle pipe. Like that's how we kind of base our offense, and that's where we kind of go from. But um, with the national team, it's it's a bit of a different style, it's a different feel with international play because middle like international middles are massive. Like they can stay on the ground, get a touch on a fifty, and still be up on the pipe. So like a, a fifty bit is tough to execute over a Mazursky, for example. Um, it's just the the style changes as the athletes change, I believe. Um, so being able to use your middle in different ways, sliding gaps, um, jumping through gaps, opening different gaps up, um, changes the game how you need to view it as a setter as well um, and how you can use that to open up different things or to exploit different people on their, on their, like in their block defense system. Now, what do you think it is about the, the pipe or the BIC that's really trending where uh, it started obviously with the international game. Universities seemed like very comfortable with it. That it's even kind of influencing club volleyball right now. Is it just the fact that you're opening up a gap, and if it's run well, it's almost a one on zero? Or, or what is like the fascination with a lot of people basing their offense on, on the fast back row? Yeah, um, for sure, it has to do with gap control. I mean, gap control is, is essential for running an offense. Um, I think one of the hardest parts about stopping uh, a fifty big, for example, is is the time differential, and if you can run it fast, the, 
the set looks almost identical for 50 as it does for the pick. So if you like, if you imagine our team, you have Jackson coming on a 50, and you have Eric coming over top of him on a pick, and you see a ball goes up that looks like, oh, Jackson probably hit that. The amount of pressure that you're feeling as a middle blocker or a left side blocker trying to help is so immense that you almost, even if you don't leave the ground, your your weight shifts a little bit because it's just human nature. It's hard, to, and you have to train against human nature if you don't want that reaction to occur. So if it's human nature to get these, their feet to lift, their heels to lift off the ground, then a bit will be wide open. You'll have a, a one-on-one, maybe if the right side's helping, a one-on-oh through the gap that's wide open now since Jackson did it, or uh, opened it up, sorry. So I think it comes down to the time differential, the gap control, and just the pressure that the blockers feel, which makes it so difficult to stop on a consistent basis. Nice. Now, with all your knowledge and, and you're still developing it and kind of borrowing ideas from other setters, is there anything that you look back and say, man, I wish I knew this as, as a first year or even a club setter? And one example, I'm, I'm name dropping a lot, but I really enjoyed when Thomas Sora came on the show. And, and one thing that Shane White got through his head this summer was it's OK to set the guy twice in the same rally, where I think if you watch high school or club, if there's a recycle and the ball comes back, we kind of just go around the wheel and set a different guy and then a different guy in a longer rally versus it seems like Volleyball Canada has no problem setting the left side two or three times in a row because the defense has to reset and recover and go get it, right? For sure. Uh, yeah, something I wish I knew when I was younger would still something I'm working on to this day, but it's just to always have a plan, always have an intent, always have a purpose to, to where you're setting and why you're setting it. So, for example, if someone, after every set, if someone came up to you and said, why did you set that ball? Should have an, you should have a reason um, to back up why you made that decision, um, which is really tough to go through a whole match with that. It takes a, an incredible amount of uh, mental toughness and mental fitness. Um, like I said, which is something I'm, I'm still working on to this day. Um, and probably will be for the next <laughs> 10 to 15 years, hopefully. But um, yeah, I think always having an intent and a purpose behind what you're doing um, a helps you to run an offense and to run a team, but also B helps you with uh, like when you're trying to cheat statistics or if you're trying to set up against a certain uh, blocker to exploit. Um, always having a an intent behind what you're doing gives you a pretty good foundation as to what you're running and why you're running it. So with the the plan you talk about, are you almost scripting plays like similar to what a football team does and say these are the plays we want to run early and see how the defense reacts or um, how much of a plan can you do in advance versus kind of being open and aware of what's happening in the moment? Yeah, I, not necessarily scripting plays. Um, going into each match, you have uh, an idea of what their block defense system usually tries to accomplish, like how, like what's their style of trying to stop people. Um, so you have that. You also need to know your offense and how you've been playing, whether you've been clicking with everybody who's hot, who's not, that kind of thing. Um, but a lot of it comes down to what are they giving you in the moment? Like, can you make the quick read, the quick decision to the open guy that they're giving you for that specific play um, in that specific moment? There's For sure there's time for setting things up. There's you got to set up your next cycle. you got to set up your next sequence. Um, but in certain situations, it's, 
it's what are, what are they giving me and what can I take kind of thing. And sometimes it can be kind of boring because if they're not making any changes and they're giving you the same thing every time, then you just have the same thing every time because why Like why not? Like you see Tom Brady in the NFL, he's just nickel and dimes people with slants and crossers because all they're giving it to him. So let's take five, seven yards every play and march on the field and get a touchdown then rather than try and force a long ball or force like a try and force the middle when they're, they're giving you the left side or force a long court right side when they're giving you the bit kind of thing. Um, something definitely that I'm still working through now is um, using having your game plan as your template and then working off of that as the defense and as their block defense changes throughout a match. So as they make adjustments, you also need to make adjustments as a setter because you have a way you're starting to exploit them. They have a way they're starting to try and defend you. As they change, you need to change with them or else they're going to catch you. You have to keep them always guessing. It's kind of like the tag, or we like to use the tag analogy at Trinity. Like, you're running away from the fast kid. You know you're not going to outrun him. So he's catching up to you, catching up to you, and right before he catches you, you zig. And then he has to get his, get his footing and then catch up to you, catch up to you, and then you zag. And then always try and stay kind of one step ahead of them. Um, it's kind of the goal for, the, for a match, but... Yeah, I guess to kind of recap it, a lot of it comes down to what are they giving you and what can you take kind of thing. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, just one more question about setting because I'm, I'm always fascinated by this. When you look through the net, how much information are you gathering? Are you really just spotting the middle to see if they're commit or fronting or if they're neutral? Or are you also looking at like the back row guys? Like how much information can a setter really gather when the ball's in play? All right. Um, yeah, that's a, an interesting one. Because I think it also, it is a little bit dependent on the situation and how much time you have to look and to gather information. But in the ideal world, you'd be able to see the middle, or they, their middle, um, fronting, staying neutral, step front maybe. You look at his position, you also look at his hips, uh, his ankles, to see whether he's in a commit position or if he's in a read. Um, and you can sometimes see his hand position. Uh, high hands usually... Means read because he can't um, get down or he can't jump from there without bringing his hands down and back up to commit on a middle. And if he does that, the middle's gonna be over him before he's up. Um, so you can gain a lot of information from the middle itself, but then also looking for the position two blocker and whether he's inside on help position. If he's way out to the pin um, for your third, your three gap control for your either your back or your your 30 run, whether he's going to be able to help. And then also, uh, I'm working on trying to look at the position one defender and seeing his position uh, in the court, whether he's up high, uh, maybe spying for a dump, or if he thinks our middles are cutting back, so he's kind of shifted to the side. Or if he's if he's deep for the big, then you know the middle's going to bounce in front of him. But if he's high up, then the big can go over top of him to the corner. Um, so stuff like that. And then post plays, talking to my, like I like to talk to Colton a lot this year. Uh, or at Daniel Barrow I played with, um, can I get a second set of eyes on what, what he's seeing and what's going on? Because it's tough to see the position five, position six, and position four players and what they're doing on defense. So if I can kind of take the front three and he takes the back three, we kind of get a full full view on what's going on, and then we can make our plan, like me and Ben Ball, like make our plan um, as to how to exploit them and what they're giving us. Jay Blankenau, episode 209. Uh, I'm curious, as you're progressing as a pro, 
what was it like seeing how the national team was progressing? So there you are and you and TJ are growing into the position, but all of a sudden like Nick Hogue or Bygrass and like the program's kind of growing around you guys as like the core of it. So what was it like going back to every summer? Like did Glenn's system get sophisticated? Did the guys playing it just get better? Like when all the results started coming with World League or, or taking some podium stuff, like what did it feel from the inside? What was kind of changing with the club? Yeah, I think our level came up. I think some of the young guys that, that were coming in, in in my age group and are in and around my age group um, and then learning from those older guys were kind of getting some stuff done at an earlier age at the higher level than like the team was doing previously, let's say. Um, I should put that like the older guys kind of grinded through like getting the program back on track and then giving it some sort of stability. And then when the young guys came in, it was like, okay, we got to learn from these guys. We got to learn from Glenn, catch up to the game. But, you know, through all those years, obviously those older guys got older. So it was like time for the younger guys to actually have an impact and to kind of use those things at obviously the highest level. So I think it was a bit of that like turning of the tides with guys that were younger but had developed a couple of years like guys like Nick and Gord and like Gord spent so many years with the national team. So by the time, like we all kind of caught up to Gord, you know, to play with him because he was playing with the older guys before most of us. So, so yeah, I think it was just like a, a coming of, of like age and development for the younger guys getting into that role, but learning from the, from Glenn obviously, and then from older guys on the team. So um, that was kind of the development. I think we went from a team that was really the feeling was like, all the medium lower ranked teams we played was like, man, we really have to win this game because that's going to keep us in BNL. Like we just, we have to win that game. So there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stress from that. And then when we played the better teams, it was like, okay, we probably will lose, but like we're going to battle with them. And then the mentality shifted to like, when we play those medium teams, it's like, and we're going to, we're going to beat these teams. Like we had this confidence, like, okay, we can take care of these teams. If we play well, that's going to be okay. Now let's like turn our eyes to what's above us and like try to start hunting those guys down. So the mentality kind of shifted through the years like that, I think. Nice. And I know he was only there for a brief period of time, but did uh, Antica have any influence on you? When I had TJ on the show, he just kind of talked about uh, Glenn is very system-based and structure-based and that's awesome and he's done a great job with Canada, but Antigua brought a different mood, a different creativity to the game. So uh, I'm curious as a setter, was that something that excited you, just having a voice for a couple seasons? Uh, yeah, definitely. I liked his style of play. He's like a, a player's coach style, obviously being a player, ex-player himself. Um, I was really impressed with like the moments in a game where he'd say like, hey, just in this, let's let's use this option. And you're like, wow, it's like, it's open or on this, that's like reach on the line on block. And it's like, okay. And you reach on the line on block and you get the block. And it's like, wow, this guy definitely has a feel for the game, you know? So it was more like that kind of stuff, which was uh, out of system play. Like you're not holding your block straight. You're like taking a risk, but he had that kind of feel for the game. So that was kind of cool to develop for me. And also it's a little bit more my style of play. So it kind of fitted, fit my mentality a little bit to be a little bit more free and open to kind of read your game. Um, so I enjoyed that for sure. He was a good guy. He used to talk to, um, he used to talk about volleyball and all that stuff. So I actually met him a couple of times this, this year in Poland. So it was good to catch up also. So, 
so yeah, and I think like that comparison of the two, like I wanted to work hard for Glenn. I wanted to play good for him. I wanted to like do the things that he said. Um, so there was like a, this hard work ethic kind of like aggressive battle mentality. And Antigua maybe had a little bit less of the like aggressive, let's like go beat down a team and a little more of the like, let's do something like creative. Let's try to find a way to get an open net. Let's try to, I don't know, like move your hands like this and try to create something that looks different for the middle. So it was just kind of like two different concepts or way of playing, but um, obviously both had an impact on our team. And uh, the the best is when you get a mix of that stuff with your team because you can like learn some from one, learn some from the other, and kind of place all those things together as a player and how it best fits. Yeah, like uh, JVD and TJ both brought up a moment that uh, in the 2016 cycle – you guys are, are down to Cuba and you go into a timeout and normally Glenn would kind of light you guys up or start uh, barking at guys where TJ, I, I forget how I described it, but he said it was kind of nice to not feel like you were playing against Glenn as well. So it showed that he kind of matured as the group developed. Like, did you get a sense of that when he came back that it, it wasn't the same guy that maybe he acknowledged that the group he started with to the group now that like you guys have matured. So he gave you a little bit more of a leash. Yeah, I think so. And I think he trusted us a lot. I think, uh, he kind of gave us the, the reins a little bit to to play and to try things between between ourselves, like the speed we wanted to play or this option we wanted to play or this style, whatever. He kind of gave us, like Glenn gave us that freedom in the second when he, when he came back. So I think he saw how we were all kind of developing in pro and coming back to the national team and developing in pro again. And a lot of us were playing on Champions League teams or we were playing on good teams in the league. So we were getting this experience and starting to develop in a way that I think he started to trust us more than the years before. And I feel like the years before he didn't necessarily trust us, but he, he knew we were going to work, but he knew that we needed like this strict framework to be successful, to learn the game and all that stuff. So I think it was like, like they were kind of saying like this flow where it went from that to a little bit less, less structured and less maybe barking at us to get us going. Um, so that, that definitely changed, uh, I think. And uh, yeah, it was interesting to see how it went, actually. Like when, you, when you look back at it, it's, it was definitely a difference. Because I remember my first couple of summers in Gatineau, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty intense, I could say. <laughs> and I'm curious, uh, as a creative guy, a competitive guy who wants to win, how do you think about the setting position? Because uh, in terms of tactics, like we, we make the joke all the time on the show where we'll have Thomas Sore on the show and he'll pretend it's this artistic position you got to have a feel for it and then we'll check the box score like you set Hamish 45 times like that wasn't artistic that was like you set your best player where when we had Dustin Snyder on it the way he described it was awesome he's like everybody in the gym knew I was going to set Gavin but how often could I run my middle on a 30 and have the other middle like yip on it so they knew that like that one out of six time I was going to set it they had to go for it so how do you kind of balance like the game plan versus the art of like yeah everybody in the gym knows this guy's going to get the ball but I still have to get a one-on-one I have to get an open net for him like how do you battle through like what the game plan says versus what you're feeling out in the moment yeah i mean that's i'm I'm actually trying to figure that out or get a little more structure to that even now um training here with ben and everything uh talking about a lot of setting stuff so i would say like i i play a lot of games on field and like kind of the flow of the offense moving this way i play against it the flow here i kind of force something or i don't know you just kind of have this feel of what's going to be open through obviously all your experiences and stuff like that 
So like if you had to encapsulate my style, I would say like a, a lot of it would be on feel. And now uh, speaking with Ben a lot and talking about stuff, we're trying to set it up so I have a bit of like uh, this structure of like I can define what I'm feeling. Like in this moment, that's why it's like this. That's why it's open. The, the middle isn't following. So I feel like there's light in front of me. So like set to the daylight and the middle should go in that gap and score. But what I'm actually doing is noticing that the middle's not following. Like that's my, that's the actual structure there. But for me, it's like been a long time of just playing. So I don't necessarily have those, like all those cues lined up kind of like a, you know, like a quarterback check down route, like where they would check all their routes and then they throw back. Like, I, I can't tell you that I have like, okay, this and this and this, but I might make the exact same play. So I'm trying to put that kind of structure to my offense now, uh, which is kind of funny, but you know, it's like kind of that constantly learning thing and trying to get better and trying to improve. So, um, that's kind of where I'm at in my setting, setting style now. Um, so yeah. And how much, uh, I know it's helping happening, excuse me, like so self-conscious happening at game speed, but how much can you prep for? Like, are there middles that you can say, oh, they're going to commit on the short side? Like if you're being pushed to four, like this middle likes to commit and follow versus he's going to stay neutral. Like, is there anything you can prep for? Honestly, it's always coming down to where's the first pass located? Are you taking a peek through the net? Like how much can you game plan for versus just being in the moment? Like you said. Yeah, I think you game plan for their tendencies. But a lot of times their tendencies are against other teams. So until you have time to play against them, you don't really know their tendency against you. So that can and that can be different. I mean, at the lower level, there might be tendencies that they just do all the time because they're not amazing players. But at the highest level that they're amazing players, they might have tendencies as well, but they're going to be tendencies depending on situations. Like when the ball is pushed forward, this middle likes to half front and then release, or he's going to half front and double jump to four, like that kind of thing where you, you kind of got to know that what's going to happen or the maybe a possibility that this is what the middle likes to do. And then once you're in the game, you see, okay, is this how he's going to do it this time? Is this his choice? Is this the way he's going to try to play us? And then trying to follow that until it changes is kind of the goal. Like, so middle doesn't want to front our middle. Okay, let's set our middle, set our middle, set our middle until you see like this guy is going to have to change at some point. If he doesn't, I guess we're setting middle. And when he does, you say, okay, now he's changing his tendency. Let's change our game a little bit. And then just having the options to be able to do that and having those guys still kind of ready to play, even though you went away from them for a while. Or, so it's like the whole balancing of that also on top of it. So, um, there's definitely a lot going on, but I think like the base layer is trying to get an idea of what somebody's tendency is or somebody's ideas and then go from there. And is it that simple or I, I guess the, the simplicity is so complex, but is it that simple where if they're not going to stop your middle and pipe overload that you're just going to go to it? Like you're not going to out outsmart yourself even and be like, oh, I haven't set right side in a while. I have to go to them. Or like if they're not stopping like an overload, like you'll set the overload the whole time. I mean, yeah, we played in um, last World Championships, we played Egypt, and they had just played Brazil. And they had something like, I don't know, 18 blocks or I don't know. And they had, a, they had so many blocks. And when Antigua looked at the video, they had like 12 or 13 of them on the middles. 
So then we looked at it and they were commit blocking on every every good pass anywhere near that you could set the middle, they were commit blocking. So we said, okay, let's set our guys in four and until they change. And so middles, you might have a boring night here because if they're jumping with you, we're just going to play a four so, and, and pipe. And so we kind of just did that and just rotated between four, pipe, 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 four, like just back and forth there. And they were committing like the whole time. I think I set maybe five middle balls in the game, just like randomly toss one there so that they keep jumping. And uh, we won the game. So it was kind of like we kind of knew what it was going to look like before the game. It might not be so fun for some positions, but kind of like took care of it in that way. But not many teams will be like that. So it'll be more of like a flow. I think there's not many teams that will commit all the time and then make you kind of win with two players or something. But um, lots of times it'll be a flow. Like they'll have an idea. And if you find that idea out and you go to the other thing, you wait for them to kind of catch that other thing. You get this feeling like, okay, they're starting to kind of get over here. And then you release somewhere else. And then you start like that kind of cycle. Um, that's more common than than the previous. And I, I guess that goes to like the leadership style of the position. Maybe it doesn't happen at the national team level, but either with your pro clubs or even a university, how do you keep your M2 engaged knowing that they're going to get maybe four attempts a match? Like, how do you get them to go hard? How do you get them to draw the one-on-one? Like, is that just coming down to them being a professional and being a competitor? Or like, how do the, how do you make them feel valued even though they're not getting swings that match? Yeah. Um, I think that kind of goes for everybody, to be honest. I think uh, not just like the second middle. I think historically speaking, yeah, the second middle doesn't get as many looks, but it depends who you have. Like, it depends what kind of player you have. Maybe you'll put like a guy, like a spiky middle that you want to just feed all the time and you put him uh, in that position, you know, because whatever, you're just going to send him a bunch, so it doesn't really matter if he's M1 or M2. Like, I don't know, like it really depends on the personnel, but I think it can even come into like, okay, I don't set opposite that much. I'm like, man, it's so hard to keep your guy going if you're setting everything else and then you could just give him one long set or something, like a difficult ball and it's like, no, man, I would have appreciated like a double plus pass in a good situation that I could get a good spike here. But so I think there's, it comes down to like obviously communication, like, hey guys, this is our idea for the game. This is our game plan. This is our style of play, whatever. Um, this is kind of where you're going to get your looks. Um, and then also comes down to in the game, like making sure you're piecing in, even though it's not part of your game plan or part of your offensive strategy, maybe you piece in like one or two to this guy that just to keep him feeling good, keep him revving. Maybe you give him one before his serve so that he feels good after spiking that he's going back to serve. Like, okay, I touched the ball and now like I feel more confident on my serve. So kind of just finding those tidbits of where to keep everybody, everybody kind of wheeling. And and you mentioned Benjo taking the helm here a couple of times and with you being a Gatineau, uh, I'm curious with a, a new cycle, is it tempting for you to be a leader based on the matches you played in your two-time Olympian that is there any opportunity to have like an informal discussion with like just the setter room right now to have you and Walsh there, but to have Sora app and Elgert and all these guys and Elser, like it just seems like a pretty young, talented group. Like have you found time to connect with those guys and just share ideas with them? Uh, yeah, definitely. And it's like scheduled. So we have video meetings, we have setter meetings, we have, uh, just like even one-on-one meetings with, with Ben. Ep and I have talked a lot already. Walsh just got in yesterday from Greece. So yeah, like we've been talking a lot and those young guys are talented. So 
Um, I think this is it's going to be a good group. And most of those video sessions, it's funny you watch a couple clips and then you just start talking about volleyball. So you're not watching clips all the time. You're just kind of discussing situations and what about this and what about that and what are you looking at here? And um, so I think that kind of stuff is is pretty important. Um, I definitely, as a player myself, I really liked when uh, older guys would give me some feedback or take the time to give some information back. So uh, obviously I'm going to do my best to kind of give them my knowledge of whatever that's worth and then they can take it and do with it what they will. But um, even for me, though, I feel like I'm kind of constantly learning here. It's Ben is a new coach. I haven't, I haven't played with him for a long time. Um, so there's a bunch of new language, a bunch of new terms. There's a bunch of new ideas. So um, just kind of catching up to all that stuff and uh, discussing with the guys is pretty cool. And then trying to pick those ideas that, that Ben has and is implementing and say, like, okay, but in this situation, this is kind of how it's been. So, like, how do we integrate this or how do we match this together? So there's been a ton of conversations with with uh, Setter specifically, but also, like, full team. We've done a lot of video sessions with the whole team, just going over our system, going over our kind of ideas of how we want to play and um, kind of those if-then situations, like, if this happens, this is what we're going to do. Um, so there's been a lot of conversations. And uh, I think the guys know, like, we have a Setter's WhatsApp group and stuff, so... Um, I think the guys know I'm pretty open. They want to grab a coffee too and just talk about even like pro stuff. Or, it's kind of difficult in Canada. We don't have a ton of information about how pro even works and like how does an agent work and how does the contracts work and I don't know, like are there bonuses normally or are they not bonuses normally? Like just random questions that you might want to know when you start getting over there. So um, I'm open for all those conversations with the guys. And I, I hope they know that it, if not, I'll, I'll send another message to make sure they know. Bree so. <laughs> King, episode 60. Uh, there's a bunch of girls in the team that have been playing forever, and I am constantly watching them, usually trying not to ask questions, just <laughs> figuring out what they, what are they doing, okay, what not to do is this, and I'll just kind of see as it's going. I'm seeing what they're doing and trying to copy it as best as possible and get not get in anybody's way. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. When we had Jen Cross on the show, she mentioned that uh, – she feels like she's one of the older ones on the team, which is shocking because I don't even know if she's 28 yet, right? So there, there is yeah. a nice mix of, of Kyla and Jen who have been around and played for Canada a bunch. And then there's athletes where um, I believe this was your first summer competing. There might be other athletes in that boat. Yeah. So um, yeah. what kind of helped you with the learning curve to get kind of caught up to their level where uh, you're just not kind of happy to be there, but you're, you're contributing and helping right away? Yeah, um, I think the most important thing that especially as a setter, it's so important to like have personal connections with your hitters and you can't, you don't really have time to like be shy or standoffish or unsure of yourself. You just, you have to be confident and just step into the role. And I think, um, right. Even in July or end of June, when I started training with the senior team, I didn't know many of the girls and I certainly not played with any of them before. So it was like, a lot of me just connecting with them as much as I possibly could. And, and especially on the court, like um, we talk a lot on our team about a feedback loop and between a setter and a hitter. And just every time um, something's not quite right or something's good, just having that quick conversation with the hitter, getting on the same page and moving on. And um, I think that helped a lot. And 
also it's just like the girls on the team are incredibly um, caring and um, there's like a real family feel. So I, I felt like it took no time for me to feel right at home and like I belonged and, and the staff did an incredible job with that as well. Like um, obviously it was an uncomfortable situation for me getting thrown into um, competitions halfway through the summer, especially in my first year. And so they really took me under their wing and made me feel like I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And this is, this is my team and I belong here and I don't need to feel like um, distant or on the outskirts or anything. So um, I think it was a combination of a lot of things, but definitely didn't take too long for me to feel like I was a part of the team and um, felt at home, I guess. Awesome. No, that's great to hear that the the culture's already kicked in with uh, Tom Black and Benjo and the other new staff that, that's joined the squad. Yeah. So uh, we, we just had TJ on the show and he kind of talked about what it's like to play at home and how fun it was to be in front of like friends and family. You guys having the opposite where you're going into the Dominican where they, uh, let's just say it, they're probably the favorite to win the event. What was it like kind of being in, in hostile grounds, I guess, and playing as, as a home team at an event that important? For sure. Yeah. I think um, the crowd was insane. There was like 10,000 people, a sold out crowd. And obviously, especially when we're playing Dominican um, you're obviously not being cheered for for the game and which is when it really really matters um, how you've prepped and how connected you are as a team and um, I think a big thing for us was just to um, trust what we had prepared and the work we had put in and to really play our game and not change um, what we've been doing or previously done but just to trust that what we have and what we are um, capable of is going to be enough and um, not like letting the environment dictate our actions I guess and I think that another that's another thing in view sports you don't really ever see a, a huge crowd by any means and and if it is a big crowd they're usually not screaming 20 constantly throughout the match so <laughs> right. but again being in Germany I play in a club that's extremely well loved by the city that we're in and there's three to 5,000 people at every match and it's like insanely loud constantly. So I definitely felt prepared. I, I honestly didn't even think about the crowd once in the match. Like I remember as they were calling out um, the players when we were playing Dominican, it was like a, a, a level of noise I've never experienced before. And <laughs> I was for a second, I was like, Whoa, like this is quite something. And then that was the last moment I thought of it. And after that, it was just what's going on on our side of the court. And, what can we do and is our energy up and down or are we maintaining? And, um, yeah, so I think it definitely, it definitely helps to be the home team, but I, it's really important to, to like focus on what's going on on your side of the court and to keep, um, kind of the flow and energy and like vibe of your team consistent, regardless of what's going on around you, I guess. Now, is that what the, the team and the coaching staff likes to anchor to when things aren't going well? Like, obviously, the after the first night, losing a tough one in five, uh, mm -hmm. easy to kind of think, like, that's that's it. But you still have yeah. two more matches, and you can still mathematically qualify, right? So how did you guys yeah. regroup and be ready to go for day two, even though maybe the plan wasn't going according to what you guys had uh, laid out? Yeah, um, that was obviously devastating for that first match. And there's a part of you, obviously, that's just frustrated and we felt like we were the better team and felt like maybe we didn't perform up to our usual standard that night. And, um, I think it's important. Like we all took a minute to really feel that and be frustrated. And then it was pretty obvious that 
we needed to move on as fast as possible, especially because that same night Dominican had gone to five with Mexico and we knew it kind of showed like, okay, this tournament is going to be all over the place and anything can happen. And we really do still have a chance. And, um, so I think there was a, I think there was a moment in the locker room after the game. I can't remember who said it, but someone said like, everyone, we can feel how we feel right now, but we have like no time to, to waste. We have to like recover really well and prepare for tomorrow's match. Like our life depends on it kind of. And, um, I, that was like totally across the board. Everyone understood, like, we do not have time to be annoyed or frustrated or dwell on the like mistakes or frustration. And what can we learn from that game yesterday? But also we're playing a totally different team tomorrow and with a completely different system and a different focus on both sides of the net. So I think it was okay. All eyes on Dominican and how are we going to beat them tomorrow? Because it doesn't matter that we just lost. Um, we have to, kind of change our perspective and go after it because we knew if we beat Dominican that we'd still have a great chance. So um, that was kind of the mindset, I guess. Obviously it, it didn't go to plan and, and being able to regroup and not only be competitive, but also beat Mexico on the last day. Um, does it feel like the team is is trending in the right direction? And the reason I ask that is just because my, my circle of friends were kind of comparing uh, where the women's team is to where the, the men were in 2012, where the core has kind of been established and everything's going the right direction, but maybe we're just one cycle away from it really clicking and having this team go to the Olympics. So as somebody who's kind of on the inside, uh, what was the messaging, I guess, from the coaches? Obviously, it, it's never good to lose an Olympic qualifier, but does it feel like we're still progressing and we're going to be ready for, for 2024? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you're right on it. I think, um, one of the main things that we talked about as a team to process kind of the loss after Dominican was, um, our head coach said something along the lines of, um, obviously we all had this like huge goal for this summer and, um, sometimes when like we were obviously going in the right direction and sometimes you just can't achieve something as fast as you want it. And sometimes it takes longer than is ideal almost, but that doesn't mean that we're not headed in the right direction. And that was, uh, that really resonated with me because obviously it's heartbreaking. And especially when there was a real sense of like 100% buy-in and it seemed, and everyone really believed like we can do this and we do deserve to be there and we're, we're good enough. And it, it wasn't blind hope. And I guess, and so, which makes it sting even more. But I think when you look back on this team and again, I wasn't, this is my first summer, so I don't have a lot of like history to compare it to, but from what I'm gathering from the team, I guess it's, um, a year ago, maybe there would be a lot less belief that we could have accomplished something this past weekend. That's really special. And we all went into that tournament this past weekend thinking that we were going to do it. And, um, actually before the, um, match against Dominican, our captain, Kyla Richie got everyone to go around in a circle and say out loud that, um, we believed that we were going to be in Tokyo and we believed we were good enough to win that game. And, everyone went around individually around the circle and said it kind of in their own way. And it was such a like special moment where we, it really was like a unanimous, like belief. And so I think the fact that we all believe that shows, um, not only the skill and growth of the team, um, volleyball wise, but also just, um, I think huge props to our staff and, 
Tom as the leader of the group, just, um, getting us all to believe in something really special. And, um, that only comes with like a ton of work and effort and, um, like unity, I guess. And so that's what gets me excited heading forward. I'm like, well, if this is how much progress we made in four months, then think about how amazing it will be in four years kind of. And, um, I think there's a real sense of that on the team for sure. Megan Nosh, episode 110. And was college a bit of a jump for you from club or because you're playing club and it's obviously pretty competitive, like was your first year shocking to see the next level or did you kind of get comfortable right away? Yes. My first year was very shocking. Uh, it took me a couple of years actually to kind of get into the stride. Uh, I almost actually got cut in my second year. Like my first year, couple of years there, I did not excel. And I think that was in part because within the club scene, I had kind of, you know, you're from a town of no people, you, you quickly kind of become the best if you have a certain level of skill. And so in the small town of no one, I was pretty good. So then I got to college and like was expecting to also be looked at that way or like treated that way or expect to just be as good as everyone else right away. And that wasn't the case. And so it took a couple of years to catch up, kind of get out of my own way, ego wise, um, had a couple like really tough conversations with with my coach at the time and then started to turn my attitude around, which completely turned my game around as well and my work ethic and everything else. But it was a very tough transition for me, for sure. I can't picture you having an attitude problem. So what was, <laughs> what was the source there? Like you just didn't have a growth mindset. Like you didn't want the feedback. You thought you were good. Like what was the cause of this first ever Megan has an attitude situation? <laughs> exactly. That was exactly it. Like I needed to be told the differences between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And I think, I was kind of closed minded before and then had to really be told like, this is what makes a great athlete. Like you need to, you need to like failure. You need to enjoy the growing pains of all of this, which I didn't, you know, I really liked, like I said, like my, my decision to go to medicine hat was comfort based and I wanted everything to be comfortable and it wasn't. And that was really uh, jarring for me. And so I needed to take on an entirely different like persona and mindset to, to switch that around. And I think that, that was one of the most helpful conversations I've ever had with, with my coach at that time and has completely changed my life. Yeah. And just to follow your career path, like when you were named CCAA player of the year, was that something you had thought about and that was going to be your goal? Like, are you somebody who thinks that team goals and individual goals need to be exclusive or were you thinking I'm going to score points for my team? I'm going to battle. I'm going to work hard. And if I get rewarded with that, that's cool. But the, the team's going to perform well because I'm performing well. Um, we had a really close knit team for my third, fourth and fifth years. And I think we just kept growing together as a squad. And it was, it was pretty incredible the way that we supported each other. And I don't think I had thought about personal accolades really. Like I was even really surprised when I got that, that award sitting at that, that banquet, because that was our first time in the, in medicine hats history that we had made it to nationals. So we were celebrating already as a team and being like, you know, we did it. We got here, (laughs) look at us go, like, let's have the best time. And then I got that award and really wasn't mentally prepared for that either. I don't think like I went from having a great time with my friends and like feeling really loose about the tournament to getting this award and then being like, holy shit, I need to now be the player of the year. (laughs) Like, how am I supposed to do that? So then I went into 
this tournament, I had nationals was the worst tournament I, I have ever played. And it was because I had put all this additional pressure on myself to be this great, like larger than life player. And it really, I wasn't, I wasn't in the right headspace um, to take that on or, or it hadn't done the, like the proper prep for that because we were just so in the headspace of like celebrating because we had made it to nationals, which I guess, I mean, when I've heard you ask the question of, um, I think it was to Josh of his first Olympics versus his second about like being happy to be there versus going in with a purpose. I think that that first, that first nationals, we were just like really happy to be there. And then when I got that award, I was a little bit shocked. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I've never really thought of it from that standpoint, but winning a major award like that, like it, it influenced your perception of yourself and your own game, right? Mm -hmm, Completely. It was, it was pretty wild. And Jamie Broder, I remember talking about uh, about this with her afterwards because she was commentating that tournament and like a couple years later after I had come to Toronto and I was chatting with her and I was just like we were breaking down the tournament and how you know she was saying how okay here's Megan and, and her team and she's the player of the year and whatever and I was every time someone would say something like that over over the the speakers I was just like oh god <laughs> like, okay <laughs> here we go Megan you're gonna be the player of the year <laughs> Uh, it was a lot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So winning that award and obviously getting your team to nationals, were those things that you used for confirmation to look to being a professional athlete, like when you turned pro or what were the conversations or the actions that led to you finding an agent and then comparing offers and eventually going overseas to France? Um, that was also in large part because of the coaching staff that I had in medicine hat, like Benj Heinrichs was my coach there and he set me up with his agent when he was playing professionally. So that was a big help because I had no idea how that system even worked. Like that professional level is not something that was talked about at the college level. Uh, Like there's no one really talks about like how the recruiting process works, how getting an agent works. So I had to kind of seek that out and make a video and like sort out how, how that whole process went, but it was mainly driven from the fact that like, I really loved the game and I did not want to stop playing. I had no direction basically like in college or afterwards, my entire purpose of going to college was to play volleyball. I felt like, and after, after that, like I took business in school because I met with an academic advisor and she was like, take business. You'll have options. I was like, okay, great. (laughs) Options are nice. (laughs) So I was at school to play volleyball. And after that was over, I needed to keep playing. Like it just, it wasn't an option for me. And I, w- I went through kind of like a spiral with that. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, like, is this really the end? So yeah, I went out, got an agent and, and got, um, I'm not sure if this is the way that like, if other people that have played professionally have similar stories to this, but my contract came and I had to be in France six days later. And so it was just, that was also like a very <laughs> jarring transition because I had to like pack up my whole life and get on a plane. I hardly told anyone about it because I didn't feel like it was real. Like until I got there and someone picked me up at the airport, then I finally like posted on my social media, like, Hey, I got a contract and it's actually (laughs) a real thing. Like I'm not being punked. And it was, um, it was amazing. It was a really incredible year just to, to live that lifestyle, to, to work as hard as those players work. Like it was, it was a really beneficial year for me. And also helped me to solidify that I really loved beach in a weird way because I had started playing beach midway in my fourth year, my fourth summer leading into my fifth year of college. I stayed and didn't go back home. And we had a pretty good 
group of people that stayed throughout the summer and we played beach every single day. And I had never played beach before. It was like the most foreign concept of trying to jump in the sand. I felt so unathletic and terrible, (laughs) (laughs) but I started to love it so much that by the time I got to France, I knew that I wanted to play beach longer term. And I think that it suited my, you know, my skill set and my body as well. Like I, after being in France or midway through my season, playing professionally and I was a left side you basically just have to like hammer every ball as hard as you can (laughs) I was like okay I'm not sure how much longer my shoulder can last out here um or my body in general I guess and a lot of people playing professionally don't have as long of careers as as beach players for that very reason like obviously the sand easier on your joints and your body and and I wanted longevity uh so I, I transitioned over to the beach when I got back from that year in France yeah, before we jump into your beach career, looking at your indoor career, going through what you did at nationals and winning player of the year and stuff like that, did that help you deal with like your your perception and image of going and playing pro in France? Or did you feel pressure that, you know, they paid for this foreigner to come in and now you're going to be responsible to really perform and be on every game? Like, was there anything going on or were you just soaking it in? It was your first exposure to professional volleyball and you were just going to take everything as a lesson? Yeah, I think I was more in that headspace. I had there was a little bit of pressure at first because I knew that the team I went to could only like bring on one professional player, and so I was that person. So I knew that I was playing a big role, but it, it felt very different. I think because after nationals, that was a big wake up call for me that I needed to do more mental work, more mental training. So I started to do that the summer before heading over to France, and it was still a big dip because I was the only native English speaker there and didn't know any French before going over. I I bought like Rosetta Stone CDs to try and learn (laughs) the language on the way there. (laughs) So I had more of a, a growth mindset with that experience for sure. Took basically every practice as a lesson and it was a different, a different mentality about it as well. Like this is your job. So you wake up and you treat your body the way it needs to be treated to, to go to work that day. You know, like practices were three hours followed by a two hour lift. Like it was harder than I've ever worked before. And that was a big, you know, mentality shift because in college you're a student athlete and the student part comes first. And as a professional athlete, like all of your focus goes into that. And I spent a lot of time throughout that, that entire year there focusing on what I could do mentally to, to be better. Nice. Nice. And because you had one eye on the beach the whole time, were you able to play beach when you were over in France or you just decided when you got home, you were going to figure out a way to get a partner and play internationally? Like what was your thought process to changing into the beach game? I wasn't able to play over there, which was a little bit sad. My, a couple of my friends and Tom came over after my contract was over and we, uh, we backpacked for a few months. And so whenever we found a beach court, we would, we would play, but while I was over there, I just knew that uh, that this is what I wanted to do. So that was kind of like the research phase of everything, like understanding how everything worked in Toronto, how you know how getting a partner worked, how travel worked, where the tour stops were. Like that was kind of what I was looking into while I was over there. And I think that's maybe why I felt the way I did throughout France as well. That like I was taking everything as a lesson because I knew that that it wasn't maybe like my end all be all or that it was like a stepping stone. Um, so I really was in kind of a gentler headspace during that time. But yeah, when I came back, I moved to Edmonton and 
lived like three steps from the beach volleyball courts, the tennis, um, they're, they're called the Garneau tennis and beach volleyball courts. And I lived super, super close. We, I played every day, was also working uh, full time to try and save up to make this move out here. And I think that was a big part of my growth too, because there was just such a great crew that was out there that was willing to play every day. And <laughs> like rain or shine, we were out there and stayed there for, I think like eight or nine months before making the move out to Toronto or before coming out for nationals. That's how it went. Um, I, I basically like begged one of the girls out there to come play at nationals just so I could find um, Steve and Ed and try to start some of these conversations and see if I had a chance in moving out here. So that was the direction. Yeah. Like for me being in it and growing up in Ontario, like I understand the pathway, but also on the other side, trying to recruit athletes out of province to come to national team tryouts, it can be challenging because it's not that clear to people. Right. So for you, nationals was going to be your big entry. Is that what you felt you had to do? Or did you contact Steve or Ed and figure out what you needed to do? Like how did somebody from out West basically find the beach national team? Yeah, I felt like nationals was my way in. Like I knew that the coaches would be at nationals. And so we got to nationals with basically like the purpose of like, yes, we wanted to win games, but both of us, because my, my partner at the time was like really supportive of me. And we were just scouting out that whole tournament of like, where was Steve? Where was Ed? How can I start these conversations with them? <laughs> it's kind of funny, like thinking about now, but um, I remember them watching watching a game on center court and they were sitting together and I was like, oh my God, like this is my time. <laughs> so I was shaking <laughs> and went up and, and started talking to the two of them. And they kind of explained how things worked, said that I could come out for kind of like a, a mini tryout by myself just so they could like assess my skill or my potential or what have you. And so flew back after nationals, uh, came back out a month later and had like a personal tryout with, with Steve. And then I didn't, I hadn't told work anything. And I went back and basically like asked for a transfer to Toronto and moved a, a couple weeks after that. Wow. <laughs> Alex O'Neill, episode 118. He brought up Glash and is kind of like the start for a lot of volleyball kids in, in Ottawa. Were you one of the guys to come through that program? I actually was lucky enough to um, benefit from that program entirely. Uh, it saved. It actually saved my life. I come from like downtown Ottawa, and I mean, we had that school was a mix of single parent families, uh, immigrant families, mine included, just kids that were on their own very poor, very poor families that went to that school. And I wasn't really used to that aspect. I went to um, Elgin Street Public School, so I was used to it and a uh, multicultural background, but I, on the level of Glash, and I was not used to it. And um, I learned pretty early on that all the cool kids there were playing volleyball. And I, there was some kind of evidence of it. I showed up on my first day and there was a volleyball court on the cement outside, fully lined and intended. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is going on here? I was like, they love this stuff over here. And I played in, in elementary school a little bit here and there, but I was mostly like a basketball basketball guy, skateboarder guy. You know, I, I idolized, um, I don't know if you uh, if you know him, Josh, but uh, Stuart Hamilton. I know the name, yeah. Uh, yeah, he played libero at Queens. He was libero of the year uh, in the OUA. His little brother, Spencer, is a professional skateboarder, and I thought he was the coolest guy ever. But they played volleyball as well and I was like 
okay, so that's a common theme here. And I had a knack for waking up early and coming to school um, just to get things started, like playing outside and stuff. And I was hearing noise in the gym one day. It must have been 7 a.m. And uh, or it must have been a bit a bit later than 7 a.m. And I'm like, there's balls in the gym. I guess one of the teams is practicing. Let's go check it out because that's just grade seven for me. And uh, I go in the gym and there's this old man sitting um, cross-legged in the middle of the net, in the middle of the pole. And he's just ripping into people, you know, about their serve, about showing up late, about this and that. So a couple of days go by where I'm just watching in the door and then he yells at me and he's like, hey, I'm like, oh, crap. I was like, OK, he saw me like <laughs> and he's like, you want to play? And I said, mm, I guess. And uh, he he put me on the court and it's been I've been playing volleyball every day. Well, obviously a break when I stopped playing volleyball from university, but I played volleyball every day from the time I was 12 or 13 till 22. Because, <laughs> wow. Because of, that, because of that, man. Now, that was one thing that Matt Harris did hint at is like anybody who wants to play at that school can play at that school. So it's got like a nice mix of like competitive guys who went on to play for Canada and then like people who just want to participate. Right. So is the gym just constantly busy or people taking advantage of the outdoor court or how is that like inclusion found at a school like Glashen? At Glashen, uh, Mr. Desclods, he was on. He's the, the coach and I actually had the pleasure of uh, sitting with him at his table for his induction into the Ottawa Sports Hall of Fame last year he makes an environment where everybody's allowed to come it's just if you start being an uh, an a-hole and you start you know if you're gonna we had a pretty crazy school if you're gonna start selling drugs inside uh if you're gonna start uh fights inside you're not gonna be allowed to come back but like he's gonna give you a chance he's a very cool guy so it would usually be the competitive players uh take the setter spot so the rallies continue, and then you filter in from the bench. You come in, you, ser- you serve, and then you continue. Or no, you go out when you serve. And it's just an open gym. It's a rotator, and you just go for it. And there's a breakfast club at the same time because a lot of the kids were too poor to eat breakfast. So they would eat breakfast while they were off and come back on. could save them save their spot. Wow. Wow. What a great yeah. setup. So good. I'm going to have to get him on the show, but it's great to see like people have gone through the program and all the high praise. He is super, he's a super captivating human. And I, I mean, I appreciate everything he's, everything he's done for me for sure. And I mean, I had the pleasure of being coached by him because he had such a close relationship with Matt Harris up until my grade 12 year, like in, even in my grade 12 year, because if you remember Matt coached the national capitals, uh, the women's team in Ottawa, a competitive women's team. So on the weekends, Matt would, that was his priority. And Matt would, you know, not let us down by getting Mr. D and Mr. D would coach us at high school tournaments. So he's like another dad to me. I've had lots of, my dad's an awesome dad, but sports dads, I've had a lot. And he's definitely one of them. He came to my wedding. I came to his hall of fame dinner. Uh, he's a client of mine in real estate. He's just everything to me. I'll, I'll I'll drop something right now. If he called me and he wanted something, I would have to do it for what he did for me and my friends. 
So lots of volleyball. <laughs> yeah, no, there are there are some stuff I want to round back to, but just to finish off your career, it, it's neat to hear you talk about you know wanting to be in the beach national team system and and with Leonard coming in and putting a big emphasis on size and things like that. But one thing that people will remember about you is you used to move to Toronto in the summers and train with Hernan's Beach Club, and, and obviously like shout out to guys like like I think you stayed at Dallas's house. I think you shared Hernan's basement with guys like Maverick and Came Shalk, like. How was that experience? Were you just so focused that you wanted to get it done on the beach that like you, you were away all year at school and then you're going to move away from home again to be in Toronto to train beach? Yeah, I just wanted to give myself a chance because I'd never been. It's pretty hard to get coached on the beach in Ottawa. It's easier now. but Back then, they didn't really have that much. So um, I was playing volleyball with uh, uh, Felipe Hernan's son at Madawaska one year. And he said, hey, next year, do you want to play beach with me? And I said, sure. So I moved to Toronto in the summer and he was part of the provincial team program and I was his partner. So I got to play with some of the best players that way. I was like a provincial team unofficial alternate. Um, and that was the one summer that we got a silver at nationals, but I got to, and I played in Hernan's beach club every, I think it was Tuesday and Thursday nights after work, I would go down there and it was just amazing. Cause you could learn so much about the beach through those guys, watching them play. And then, the next summer I played with Daddy and stayed in Ottawa. So that was third year going into fourth year and ended up winning nationals with Rex at U21. I didn't train that much that summer. I, I worked the following summer for going into Algonquin. I played with Felipe again and I got to play with Sam Pedlo as well, which is he got me my, my highest finish in an elite eight event. We lost in semis, uh, but I still remember that. And I really liked it, but I lived with Hernan. I had a, I have an extended, um, invite to Hernan's anytime I want because him and I got along so well another father figure for me um he taught me a lot about life like just the drives back he would wait for me to finish training to drive me back I lived in his basement but like I was his own son like that that was so cool for me and sometimes Felipe wouldn't even be there he was just such a generous man and we had really good talks about relationships life meditation and he coached me a lot because sometimes if, if uh, sessions were canceled, he'd coach Felipe and I like solo. Yeah. What can you tell us about his coaching style? Cause I've got to shadow him a lot and learn so much. And like you said, it's not all volleyball with him. Like he's just a genuine, amazing person. So with you kind of going through beach volleyball, but learning life lessons, is there any like story or example or just a way he has of speaking that really stood out to you that why, why he is as great. Like there, there's not a, a person who says a bad thing about him in the volleyball community. <laughs> yeah. He's pretty incredible. Yeah. Just like showing up ready to go, like ready to practice. And then he'd be like, okay, sit down. I'm like, I just got off the subway. You're going to get me to sit down. All right, let's go sit down. Am I stretching? Am I stretching? <laughs> no, close your eyes. I'm like, I guess what the hell? All right. Close my eyes. Oh, I'm meditating again, aren't I? I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm meditating now. And, you know, just sitting with myself. He, he kind of looked at me and was like, Felipe was a pretty calm dude. I think he could sense that there was something about me that I wasn't comfortable with in my own self. Because, he, like, meditation was a focal point before training with him. And just taking in the sights and the sounds and being comfortable, and breathing with yourself, trying to be present, focusing on the breath. And then you practice. And it was a recurring theme. And what I took away from Hernan was definitely the meditation bug for sure. Reading about meditation, practicing meditation, um, trying to live a mindful life, 
And also some volleyball tips were, were huge too, because he always asked the question, like, why, you know, why would you do that? So Felipe and I would be up five, right. Or up three against the team. And I've been jump floating. And because the wind's in my, I'm picking on one guy, I would chuck up a spin and miss it. And he would look and he'd be like, Alejandro, why, why? <laughs> and I'm like, like, what do you mean? Why? I just wanted to bang a serve. And he goes, you did the hard part already. He's in a, the, the defender is in a tough spot mentally. Why are you giving him a way out? All you had to do, like steadily, you need to get off the gas as the other person becomes so, you know, in their own head, right? You don't need your best serve anymore. You need the serve on the guy. That's it. And I never thought like that. I was always go, go, go harder, 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 you know, serve harder, hit harder. But he was always about, you know, you got to be casual about this. It's not, it's not rocket science. He's just, he hasn't sided out in three points. He's a mess right now mentally, right? Why would you spin serve and get, let him breathe? Like, and miss possibly, you know, like, why would you do that to yourself? So very simple, oversimplifying the game and, having freedom in your mind. Like he would always talk about, you need to play like you don't care. I'm like, but I care a lot. He goes, like you don't care. Like you don't care. You can't be over-invested in winning or over-invested in losing because then you're giving up the present moment. You're going to miss all this. And I, he would say these things to me and I, I'm a kid, right? But now that I'm deeper in my own practice of meditation, I totally get it. He was talking about grasping. You're grasping at the win. You're grasping at the loss. You're over-invested in what's going to come next, meaning you're not here. You're Alex 7.0. You know, you're not 100% in because you're somewhere else. And I was like, I, at the time, I didn't really take it in. I just took in the breathing in, breathing out, sitting. But there's a lot of meditation in what he teaches and the way he talks. And over, if you, you know generalize a cultural group if you are too inclusive in your beliefs or sorry too exclusive in your beliefs he is like on you like a hawk why do you think that you know why why do you think that and he's breaking down your makeup of the way you've been since you were a kid by just asking the questions and you're left with this kind of at peace human because you're not over invested or over opinionated about anything that's kind of what i took from him is that is kind of just the breathing, the meditation, and, and not so much volleyball. He keep your elbow high, okay? I don't think he said that to me once. It was always be here, be here now. Tom Black, episode one twenty one. Nice. And when you inherit like a national team program, I think it's it's very tempting that everybody wants to go to the Olympics, everybody wants to do well at the Olympics, like. But that's still an unknown to a lot of players, especially with, with our our indoor uh, national team on the women's side, like that. I don't think we have a current player who's been to the Olympics, obviously. Right. So with that being the goal, how do you navigate the unknown? Cause I'm sure you can't just come in and say, well, I'm Tom black. I was at the 2016 games. Is it like this? Follow me. This is how we're going to do it. Right. But how do you get the, the players to buy into this unknown and pretty lofty goal? Right. Yeah. I think that's the hard part. I mean, that's the, that's the messy part. You know, I think with USA, like I, we were talking about earlier, you know, I think the outcome is overwhelming. It's just so in front of your face and you're so aware of it, um, that you're trying to do everything you can to, like get yourself on the process to try to take the outcome out of your mind and get to what get to what you like to do, which is play volleyball at the highest the highest level possible and get better at volleyball and see where it takes you. And Canada was the opposite. I don't know if there was really an expectation to qualify for the Olympics or that anyone 
really believed that we could do that. Um, so it's kind of the opposite of USA where we had to like really get clear on if that's what we were trying to do or not. And then, and then from there we could have a, we could have a more structured process. You know, are, are our behaviors lining up with what we're trying to accomplish? Um, but it's kind of a, it was kind of a flip model of a USA, if that makes sense. Yeah. And how did you define those behaviors? Like are you using stats and videos from teams who have been there and kind of using that as a model or how are you trying to show again, like with, with the end goal being unknown to so many athletes, how are you determining that? Like we're going to win Tuesday, we're going to get better on Tuesday and that's going to help us in our journey. Like how are you instilling that belief that uh, you kind of have credibility in what you're talking about and the athletes are going to be with you in the long run? Yeah. You know, it took, it took a while. I think the first month was really messy. You know, I, I think it's very much, uh, you know, you could give me any volleyball player in the world and I could ask them like, do you want to be in the Olympics? And they'll all say yes. And then, you know, you start having them do the daily work that it requires and lots of people start dropping out pretty fast. You know? And so I think it was the difference between, you know, wanting to and doing it. And, uh, we just kind of had to point it out and talk about it a lot. And, uh, we, you know, we got, we got to a moment, uh, that it was just a really simple question, but it resonated with them. You know, if you were in the Olympics, would you do that? And that just really kind of stuck in our gym. You know, if, we, if you were in the Olympics right now, would you show up at this time or this time? If, if, if you were in the Olympics right now, would you practice like this or like that? Would you, you know, would you warm up like this or like that? And it just that that uh, that line of thought started getting some energy after a certain amount of time. And I thought by the uh, by the time we were uh, in the VNL qualifier down in Peru, uh, you know, I thought we you know, we were a different unit. And how did you come across your own coaching style with like teaching principles and, and the growth mindset and almost like this, this faith-based style of, of teaching where you, you know, it's going to happen. We just got to really plug away and keep doing work and more work and more work. Right. Like, how did you narrow this down? Obviously we've heard from your, your earlier answers there that you've just coached a ton. Right. But how did you work on this? Cause I think what coaches really want to know is like, we use the word transfer a lot here, but I'm not sure people know how to actually measure it or how it got measured in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We still can't exactly measure it. That's part of what makes it so hard. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's a combination of, uh, you know, personal failures, great mentors and, you know, kind of experience. It's just, uh, I mean, I was just a complete opinion based coach coming out when I first started and, um, yeah, just wasn't making my players a lot better and was trying to coach through emotion and passion. And, you know, sometimes that's good, but lots of times it makes you feel empty after. And, you know, we want to be aware. We want to be aware of our emotions. We don't want to be governed by them. And, um, and then I just got exposed to, uh, you know, Ken Stanley at Pierce College, and he changed my life. He really showed me that there's there are laws of learning, and there's a way to, you know, bring your students or your players around. And then I got introduced to Carl McGowan with Gold Medal Squared, and that deepened it even further. He, you know, I hadn't really heard of motor learning until I heard of him, and. You know, and then from him, you know, Jim McLaughlin and I've been around Marv Dunphy a long time. And, you know, Ron Larson, I mentioned him before, but he was really the first guy that he really took the time, like hours with me to kind of show me how to apply these principles, these motor learning principles into your practice. You know, is, is this consistent with random versus blocked? Is this consistent with whole versus part? And uh, he spent a lot of time with me for a number of years uh, as well. You know, I could go on and on from there, but uh, you know, I think. I think those mentors are just, you know, being willing to be a sponge around them and uh, not, not being scared to make mistakes or to show that I really don't know anything. I was totally willing to do that. And it just kind of shaped over the years, you know, lots and lots of reps. And I'm still trying to still trying to get better. I mean, just on the phone, Jim McLaughlin today and, you know, trying to figure out how not how to not mess up my outside hitters. So, I mean, it's, it's a never ending process. And hopefully we can be excited by that. Hopefully we can be fired up that. We have something to learn today and we'll, we'll get a little bit better. That's what we want from our players. So. 
was there ever a moment uh where the theory didn't really match what you were seeing in the gym like uh i, I find that sometimes where you read a cool book and then you go to your club team and you try something and you're like oh i must be doing something wrong here because this is not this is not working right so with you coming in and not to throw anybody under the bus but when we had autumn bailey on the show she mentioned she was really frustrated like i think she really she had to work on some skills and there's like a super high level athlete who's done so much in our sport already and and you're asking her to do new things and challenging her and she mentioned she was like i went from being i thought i was good i went pretty bad and then i got really good and i was like oh that's an interesting journey right so with the athlete being frustrated um how did you navigate those situations or was there ever a moment where maybe what you were doing at USA wasn't going to work with Canada and the, and the theory didn't match what you were seeing in the gym? Yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't what I was doing at USA though. I, ha- I had to say that sometimes where I just couldn't get buy-in, but it, it was just, I mean, the, it's not about USA. It was about the principles, you know, that, and, um, you know, I was exposed to those principles a long time ago and I'm, I'm still trying to understand and apply them better. Uh, you know, I think the frustration that you're talking about, you know, frustration comes from being at the edges of our ability. So I think I think that frustration is unavoidable. But it's like I said earlier, we want to be aware of our emotions. We don't want to be governed by them. So so for for lots of people, you know, I've, I've been in this boat too. We all have. But sometimes it, it becomes all about the frustration, which is understandable and part of being human. But once it's all about the frustration, it's not about getting better anymore. So we got we have to learn through that process, and uh, we got to ask why we're frustrated and um, what do we want more, and how are we responding to that frustration. Uh, is there a better way to respond and, you know, try to get more connected to our goal? And to me, like, that's part of the learning process. That's a huge part of the coach-teacher relationship. So, we're, you know, we're not, we're not trying to create rainbows and ponies every day. We're trying to create this really, um, hopefully, exciting environment where athletes feel valued, for sure. They feel valued, they feel cared about, but they also feel challenged. And that's, that's part of why coaching is so hard. You know, if you think about creating that balance every day for your players and for your teams – yeah, that's that's why coaching will never get boring. Yeah, we, we how how can you ever possibly get too good at that, right? So it's uh, but that's what we're trying to do. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for your answer so far. I'm learning a ton here, and I bet our listeners are too. So, <laughs> kind of the the art of coaching. So hopefully you just don't say that, and that's the art of coaching, and you get off the hook here. But I'm wondering, like one thing that coaches always kind of come back to is you can really only do what your players are able to do, right? But I'm wondering how do you find the balance of like pulling up and saying, well, this is what we're able to do. So that's what we're going to build around versus pushing them and trying to get them to do more. Like where, where does that point come in training? We're kind of like, you know what, we're just not going to be able to do ABC. So we're going to switch it. Like how, how do you know that that's the reality of what your team is versus no, we just need to put in some more hours and we're going to get this. Well, you don't know that. And I think that's where the humility has to come in as a coach. Cause if you lose that humility, you're going to get fixed. And if you get fixed, you're going to put a ceiling on your athletes abilities because you're just going to keep teaching the way you always have been. So I think there has to be a humility that, we never know the final answer on if what we're doing is right or if this is as good as a player can get, you know, and I think you got to assume that the answer to both is no, that there is a better way to coach this and this player can get better. Um, because if we look at it any other way, we're, we're going to put a ceiling, like I said, either on how we're teaching it or how good they can be because of how we're teaching it. So I think there's this tension between, um, is there, you know, this, this player can get better and I can teach better. I think we have to have that mindset. And then there also has to be the tension between that and is what I'm asking them to do fair within the amount of time given to me. Right. So, um, and we have to balance that and walk that line. Um, so, you know, the, the, the player has to be challenged to get better, but they have to be, they have to feel like they have a reasonable amount of time to perform the skill so they can, they can compete with confidence. And that's, that's the tension we're walking. That's the fine line. And again, you, I don't think you can get good enough at that either too, but I think it's really important as coaches. That's why 
that's why humility is important. And uh, because if we're not humble, we're not going to be open to the fact that, you know, we don't know it all and that we can do it better next year than we did it this year, but we have to be able to look at our methods and question ourselves that there probably is a better way. Can we find it? And how are you modeling this as a coach? Cause just hearing you talk, this great examples, but I'm wondering if you could give us like a, a physical example of what you do that a coach can model that they have a growth mindset or that you're negotiating yourself through frustration or that you're willing to be open. Like how, how are you showing the athletes that you're also in this struggle? Cause I think it's one thing to put the message on the whiteboard and just say, go do it and have expectations for them that you're not going to follow. But I think it's sometimes challenging for a coach to, to model that they do have a growth mindset. So I'm wondering if you have any examples you could give us. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you're making me cringe cause you're making me think about all the times I screw up. Um, <laughs> but it's like, I mean, you just start with that. Hey, I really screwed up yesterday and, uh, and this is why, and this is what I'm going to do about it. And, you know, I remember in passing, uh, I, there was the first practice with Canada that we had at UBC university of British Columbia. Um, I remember the day before, you know, I, I didn't mean it to be insulting, but I, I think I just, got lazy in my speech and um i was trying to explain an offensive system and how we were going to attack a blocking scheme and i i, I kind of made a reference to how they were previously playing and how we might have easily felt like we could easily exploit it and i uh I, I don't think i said it really rudely it was it was like in the middle of a package but i thought about it that night and i'm like well one that was super rude that was really disrespectful to the previous you know, staff and really disrespectful to these players who were just giving hundred percent to what they're being asked. They were doing exactly what they should be doing and really arrogant on my part that, you know, I'm, I'm just assuming like, of course I believe this is better. I wouldn't teach it, but, um, I didn't have to go about it and that's not who I want to be. And, um, so I, I had to, so I had to bring that up. And, you know, it was, it was kind of one of those things too, where like, if I didn't bring it up, probably people would have forgotten about it, but I haven't forgotten about it. So yeah, I just don't want them to think that I think it's okay or that they need to be vulnerable, but I don't. Um, so I remember UBC, I, I brought it up and I said, Hey, I owe you guys an apology. You know, you, you were executing a system that was being asked of you and you were doing it to the best of your abilities, doing hundred percent, which is exactly what you have to do as players. And, and coaches were asking you to execute the things that they believed in, which is exactly what we're going to do. So I, I was out of line there and, and I apologize. And, um, I want you guys to know that I understand how hard this stuff is and I appreciate how much you're giving to it. And, and I just got to ask you to believe me that this is going to pay off because this is where I saw you three weeks ago. And this is where I see you now. And this is where I see you three weeks from today. And we could be really, really good. So, um, like you're probably feeling some energy as I talk because I was really being open and I was like, Hey, like I screwed up just like you guys. And now let's go. Cause we could be better. And, um, so I, you know, that's just one example that comes off the top of my head. Nice, nice. And I was hoping you could give us another example of just how you navigate the, the growth mindset. So one great example that John Mayer gave us is like, you, you can't ask an athlete to have a growth mindset and then yell at them when they make mistakes. Like that's not, uh, that's not a good example of what we're trying to do here. But I'm wondering where is the balance about coaching them up and giving them feedback and correcting? Like, how do you walk that line that, you know, do you give them more reps? Do you kind of give them feedback and then let them, you know, do a little bit more? Or, or what would be like the the secret sauce to how you've made your gyms into a growth mindset that maybe some of our listeners can steal and start applying in their gyms. Yeah. I'm a little feistier than John. I think yeah, John's, uh, which is probably why John has way better relationships with his players than me. Um, so <laughs> I, I think there's, I think there's a time, I think there's a time to feel a little bit of an edge from a coach, but I don't think it's nearly as much as maybe we want it to be sometimes, but yeah, for sure. We can't be barking and yelling at people, um, all the time. Yeah. Uh, 
So what was your question? I got a little sidetracked. Sorry, I was just wondering if you could give us an example of what growth mindset looks like. Like if I'm in a drill and you're telling me to have a growth mindset, but you yell at me every time I make a mistake, obviously that's not right. creating or modeling it, right? So how do you, you know, give feedback and push people, but still encourage this mindset that it's okay to make mistakes. We're all learning. Like we're going to get through this. Well, it's just what you said. I mean, if I'm yelling at you every time, then it's not okay to make a mistake, is it? Right. You know, so it's, uh, we can only, uh, you know, we can only get what we're reinforcing. So, you know, the, the growth mindset is the ability that the growth mindset, as I understand it, is the belief that, uh, skills, skills can be grown and improved if I'm willing to work hard enough and work smart enough, you know, and that the, the only way to grow those skills the only way is to make mistakes, which makes me really hate that word because I don't see them as mistakes. I see them as steps on the ladder, right, to get to where we want to go. There, there literally is no other way to get to that successful rep that we couldn't do before without those, you know, I'm using air quotes here, mistakes. And they're, they're not mistakes. They're these little gifts of information to get us to that higher level rep. And and once we get it, we're probably not going to be able to do it again for you know, 10 more reps or five more minutes because we're not very good at it yet. We just did it once, right? So we have to work incredibly hard just to get two out of 10, three out of 10, right? And then we stay there for a little bit and then we spike up all of a sudden to five or six out of 10. So there was this little plateau between three out of five where it seemed we weren't getting any better. And that's really frustrating for players and coaches. But in reality, we were learning and that's what led to that leap. And, you know, it kind of goes on and on and on. So as a coach, we have to be incredibly mindful of this environment. Like, are we promoting these mistakes? You know, what does that mean? Okay. Well, it means are our drills putting them on the edges of their ability? Like if they, if the player does what they need to do mentally, emotionally, and physically, and they do this drill a hundred percent, is it going to put them at the edge of the ability where they're going to feel a lot of failure? That's, that's part of our job. And then no one likes to live in that environment. So I have to, I got to be good with my feedback. I got to be good with my body language. I got to be good with my relationships and my tone of voice. And cause all, all that stuff, there has to be some support there in this really challenging environment. They got to feel like I'm on their side. And, uh, and, you know, it's a dance, right? And the player's got to be attacking it. And the coach's got to be attacking it with them. And if it's a, if it's really a challenging environment, then that means both are going to screw up. You know, the player's not going to have – the player's going to have some reps where maybe they didn't give it their best. And the coach is going to get some feedback that didn't make sense because, you know, you're both pushing yourself. So, you, um, so those, are, those are great little opportunities to, you know, show your, your vulnerability and make things safe. Like, hey, maybe I didn't say it the right way. Did that resonate? And the player's say, no, that made no sense. Okay, my fault. Let's try this. You know, like you're just you're just in it together. And if you're really in it together, it's uh, it's a really messy environment, but it's a really exciting environment because you're both willing to admit your screw ups and then you do it better next time. And I think what makes it exciting is you, you form a relationship that is all about the objective and the objective is just to get this player as good as they can possibly be. And I, and I think that's that's when it's really functioning at its highest level. Now, obviously, the, the skill is going to change, but are there any foundations he talked about about teaching and learning or just principles you believe in like if we were to pick a skill like uh if you want to run a faster offense with canada are you showing your setters what international players are doing so they have a model to work off of are they watching video of themselves are they statting it or how are they gaining this belief that you know yesterday i was three out of five tomorrow i'm going to be four out of five or not tomorrow two weeks or whatever it is but how do you know that they're progressing like what are some things that you do to encourage learning that other coaches could start to apply in their gym yeah, I mean, stats, we do very sparingly and carefully. Um, we do a little bit of that, but more it's all the above of all the other stuff. I mean, we're uh, we're presenting the goal and making sure they understand it, and we're going at the pace of the learner and trying to make it as game-like as possible through each of the steps. When they And when they do it right, go crazy about it and try to develop this little pure culture where they're 
supporting each other through it, learning through each other through it, and get a lot of video feedback and examples and stories, hopefully, as well. You're just trying to hit it from all sides as much as you possibly can. Craig Moore, Episode 7. Yeah, I mean, we have a couple of sayings that we that, that we that we roll with, and that that's one of them. And, and it's hard as a coach; it's really easy to say process over outcome, but then it's also really easy to rip a kid for missing a serve. Yeah, and and or telling a kid like, "Oh, hey, we got to get our serves in." And, and when I um, when I coach now, we have a couple of things on serving. One, however old you are, if you can stand in a gym and get eight of ten serves over the net and in, you're too old or you're too good to serve in. You now need to be serving specifically for a reason whether it's to get aces, whether it's to serve that girl's left shoulder, whether it's to serve that person's left knee, I'm going to serve that seam to the end line. Like you need to sit back and think about like, I'm going to serve this exact spot. And then when the kids go for it and they miss, it's okay. Right. What we can't have is at young ages, like, oh, I'll just serve in and I'll win. Right. Yeah. And, and you just want them to go back and hit their best serve every time. And that's what we, we did this year and, and my team this year. And it's hard as a coach, like we'd have games where we miss eight serves in a set. And I will not say anything about serves other than when you go back, pick your spot, hit your best serve. And your best serve depends on a number of things. It depends on what the other team's doing, what our team serving strategy is. If they have really good middles, maybe our team serving strategy is just to serve super tough. If they have one person who can't pass, maybe the team serving strategy is just serve it at that girl. Right. Right. Like it doesn't not necessarily matters, but it's your best serve. So you got to check what your adrenaline's doing, what your heart rate's doing, what your fatigue level's at and whatever that moment is like, go hit your best serve. And it's, it's hard to live. It's, it's really easy to say living in process. Or really easy to say that. It's hard to live in it. Definitely. definitely. It's, it takes like a lot of mental fortitude because you want to tell girls like, oh my God, like on the beach example, like line over was wide open there. And you like took a chew on the Terminator ball hard cross and you hit it out by an inch. And you want to say to them like, hey, like you should have done that. But at the end of the day, like that hard cross swing is probably going like, to, if they did it again, it's probably going to score. And it's okay. And then again, when they're 20 and hopefully they're playing NCAA somewhere, you know, they have the confidence. Like you said, it's 1919. They've done this shot a million times. I'm going to end this rally right now. Yeah, I think because there's so much pressure, right? Like I think parents who don't understand the game, they know what a misserve is and they know it's an automatic point. Like the, the, the analytics are simple on a misserve. We lose that point 100% of the time. 100% right? of the time. But Looking at what Carrie McDonald and the staff did there at UBC about like the serving study they did and everybody's jump serving and everybody's hitting their best serve and what the USA men's indoor are doing with like, if Matt Anderson misses his serve, the next guy up, he doesn't have to get it in because they're not a team that, oh, we can't miss two in a row or they yeah, miss after exactly. a or whatever the seven sins of miss serving it. It's like, we're not connected. Serving's an individual skill. Let's hit our best serve. Like, yeah, every time. We're not trying to miss. Everybody's doing their best. But I think serving's become such a weapon for a yeah. lot of people and, and for you playing at a high level and seeing your athletes at a high level. If you're serving muffins, you're going to lose that point anyways, right? So you yeah. might as well put something in there. You might as well be tactical. And I think you guys have started that conversation young. And I think the athletes yeah. are probably further along than, the, than they would be compared to athletes around the country just because it's a conversation early and it's it's encouraged, right? And hopefully that gets through to the parents and everybody and their school coaches and everything like that, right? Yeah, I actually I talked to my parents yesterday on my indoor team and I said, because I listened, I watched our provincial final, the tape playback, and I could hear them saying like, hey, so-and-so, like, get this serve in. And I told them, like, we don't say that. If you guys want to talk about their serve, you need to say, hey, hey, go hit your best serve. Like, if that's what you want to say. And and they kind of laughed about it, but I was like, no, I'm serious. Like, that's what you need to do. And part of it for me is it, it's this weird, it's this weird mental narrative that I find especially girl, female volleyball players have where they want to do this thing where they really focus on the mistakes and not the successes. 
And I laugh because after we play Clivers, we'll go to the bar, a bunch of guys, and you'll be sitting around, how's your day? And like, oh my God, you should have seen this block I got. Yeah. I absolutely shit slam somebody, and I'm the best. And, oh, how'd you do? Oh, you got 25th. Okay, and then you'll talk to a female volleyball player. Oh, how'd you do today? Oh, I, I was not good today. I missed a bunch of shots and this, that, and the other. Oh, how'd you do? I got second, right? And it's this different mentality. But when I when you watch games, and if you guys, if anybody like listening plays still or coaches, like look at the other team's body language. There's a huge difference in momentum and energy level if your team goes and does everything right and just misses a shot. Like I think about a beach volleyball. So get a good set, defender's cheating line, partner yells cut shot, you hit a perfect cut shot, goes out by an inch. The other team goes back like, oh my God, that's lucky. We were nowhere near that ball. You go up, you're like, oh my God, don't miss. You hit a roll shot right out of the fender. They transition, bounce it on you. Now they're fired up. We're the best. Let's go. It's a totally different mentality. It's still one point, but we tell our girls all the time. If it's, if, if the reason is, if it's like, I don't want to miss, I'd rather you did miss because if you're missing, you're at least going for a shot that's going to score instead of being like, I hope the other team screws this up. Sandy calls it losing volleyball. You're playing losing volleyball. You're hoping the other team gives it to you, not going to win it. Yeah, and I think we, we've all been in those moments, whether it's been as a player or a coach. Or, the parents do have the hard job because they're not involved. Right? They can't no, points. They're just kind of hanging on. But, uh, I yeah. did talk to one coach who said that either the parents are in the gym for every practice and they hear everything you say, then they can talk. If they're not, they can't say anything. Right, because they wouldn't have been a part of those conversations. Because they're not a part of those conversations yeah. about hitting your best serve, process over outcome. You know, like, okay, go on, girls, just hit it in. Uh, nope, that's not what we're doing here. You know, if you do the right things, it's going to go in more times than not. For sure. And I think you guys, for if you're if you're doing your best from day one, then like the fifth practice of the year, the first tournament of the year, the semifinal at nationals, those are all championship mentalities, right? So it's just, it's kind of building that, that attitude that your team's going to have where, I imagine they don't feel the same nerves as a team who gets to the quarterfinals and nationals. They're like, oh, they start to look around and be like, oh, this is the show. Where you guys are like, no, we've been playing our best and doing our high-intensity stuff since day one, right? Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, last year, my really good example is the Sydney girls who played on my team last year, my club team. We won nationals. Um, I started coaching at 16U. And, and Sydney, Sid, if you ever listen to this, love you. But uh, like Sydney's serving percentage was like well sub-50 for 16U and 17U. And since 16U, I would literally tell Sid, I'm like, Sid? Go back and hit your best serve. Go back and hit your serve. I don't think I was using, sorry, I wasn't using best language back then, but I was saying, Sid, like, go back and rip it. Like, go get me an ace. And I was saying that ever since 16U. And then 16U, it was a ride, and parents were talking to me about this, that, and the other. And, and uh, 17U was tough as well. And then uh, 18U, like, all of a sudden, like, those, those ones that were going out by a foot are now going in. And she just had more reps of high intensity serving. And then we get to nationals last year and in the weekend she had 25 aces. Wow. Wow. Like she basically didn't miss a serve. It was absolutely bananas. She'd go back and go on runs two, three, four every time. But that, that has to come down to you being consistent with the messaging. Because it's one thing to say, go back and hit your best serve, but then being patient with an athlete who's missing half their serves, right? Or, exactly. Or you're tempted to put in a serving sub, or maybe mom and dad are pressuring her to like get it in, where yeah. it, you got to be really patient. you got to live it. I think, yeah, if you're exactly. Be a process guy, right? Yeah, exactly. That's the hard part is like living it. It's literally like sitting there being like, okay, like this is a really tight game. Like we really need this point. Um, I have a middle this year who I'm going through this right now. It's like, she hits a really crazy jump float. It's literally ace or miss. Like it is an absolute gnarly serve. And would I like it to go in more? Absolutely. But 
we're at the point where it's 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 there and she had to serve at 15 no 14 13 in the provincial final and she was serving i could have put a serving sub in who probably would have served it in but i left her in there and she just missed it she missed by six inches okay and then we went back around we wanted our next server but um it it is hard to say and it's hard to deal with athletes and parents and when i when i sub kids out for serving i always tell them it's it's pretty much always a defensive choice mm -hmm. i never tell them i'm subbing them out because their serves no good or because i want a different server i'm always like i'm subbing you out because like i would sub sib out to serve sometimes but it was always for a defensive situation or i get back hands in because i had kayla oxlin my setter last year who could also swing so there's a lot of a lot of different options that I could do there, but it was never because I thought Sid was going to miss her serve. Right. It was always for like a different tactical reason. And she knew that. And, um, eventually like it sounds weird. And I'm going to say this right now because I know my kids aren't going to listen to it until after this nationals is over and then they're going to graduate and they move on. But I, this, my team this year, I've built this, I'm going to call it a fake narrative that we don't ever lose third sets. And we do, we lost the third set today. Um, and we lost the, we've lost a couple all season as well. We've lost, I think five and, uh, but they don't think they lose because when we win, I make a huge deal about the fact nobody's better in third sets than we are. We never lose third sets, like all these things. And then when we lose third sets, it's no big deal. I don't even talk about the third set. I just talk about, you know, a few process keys that I think we missed or cues that we missed. And we have this absolutely, the kids were hilarious. We won at provincials and we won in a third set and the girls were before they got the medals like we never lose third sets and i'm like yeah see i told you we we'd lost one that weekend we'd lost one on day one like um so it's it's pretty funny but you, you can build these like you can build these fake confidence things um uh, it turns into real confidence turns into real confidence yeah. yeah so if you if you if you sell something enough like it turns into real confidence so if you believe in kids so much they eventually have to start believing in themselves and i assume i I know a lot of coaches don't, but my assumption is in the moment, every girl is trying their best or every athlete is trying their best. And if they're not executing, it's for a, it's for a reason. And it's my job to figure out what that reason is and either give them the confidence they need to succeed or give them the skills they need to succeed at that skill at a high enough level. Cause this whole like thing of like, we're, you guys need to, you know, this is back to the serving thing. You need to serve in. Well, every girl's trying to serve in. Have you ever talked to a girl that's like, I'm missing on purpose? No, nobody's <laughs> trying to miss, right? So it doesn't make any sense to, to say those things. So, um, but it, yeah, it's, you can build these things. Reggie Jackson, you know, Reggie Jackson, Mr. October. It, Reggie Jackson's numbers were way worse in the playoffs than they were in the regular season. But Reggie Jackson's like second ever playoff game. He hit two home runs and somebody's like, wow, man, you're clutch. Yeah. And he's like, I am clutch. And he lived his entire career deep down believing that he was better than everybody else in the clutch. And he, he wasn't even better than himself in the clutch, but he believed he was. Michael Jordan, people make all these, oh my God, Michael Jordan was so clutch. Michael Jordan, the last 10 seconds of a game, shooting percentage, way worse than it was in regular time. Everybody's worse under pressure. The difference is, is how close can you get your pressure line to your regular line? Yeah. Your free line, I call it. Like your freedom line. Like your coach lets you play free. So if you can if you can build this narrative of freedom and letting kids play free and, and free to make mistakes and free to get better and free to learn new things, then when push comes to shove and it's 15-14 and you need a swing to win, they're not thinking it's 15-14. They're thinking, what swing is going to get us the best opportunity to get a point right now? And you just hope they execute it. And of course, we couldn't leave out the Garrett May Show, episode 49.
What was it like being in an environment like that where like Alberta and Trinity are very like almost Glenn Hogus where they're talking like the national team guys do and then there's just you guys just riled up and ready for a fight? Yeah, well, we, <laughs> we had a couple of fighters on our team, actually. <laughs> a couple of tough guys on the team. You know, it was fun. Like, that was the thing about that team. It was like, that team really wanted to be great. And <laughs> but but nobody like nobody really cared about the X's and O's. It was like, <laughs> let's just go out there and get it done, boys. And that that was kind of our thing. Like in the team room <laughs> before games at that tournament, it was like, no, are we doing game plan? No. We're doing the Donnie to music in the in the team room before the game. Like, we're not getting prepared. What do you mean game plans? No, go up there and win. Like <laughs> we're dancing in the team room, like we're just kind of really trying to enjoy it because a lot of those guys were smart guys and knew that like this is this is it like you know this is it for them like we're going out there to try to win but this volleyball thing is like not their life like you know for me and maybe some of the other guys who've gone into coaching it's like okay it's persistent but for like I don't know a lot of those guys it was like no this is it so you better enjoy it nice that's a great way to go into it because if we recap the path there play Trini Western in the quarters perennial team they've been good for as long as they've been good for like it's just insane you, you get a win in five i believe and yes. then you come across the, the big rival mcmaster where i don't think anyone on your roster has ever beat them or vice versa nobody at mac has ever lost to western including regular season games right well we've we beaten them a few times over the years in regular season oh i didn't once realize or, that once or twice but in oua finals but they that had year number. that year they had never we had never beaten them we played them three or four times and we hadn't beaten them that year at all um and for yeah, for us to come out and win was pretty cool. And like you said, there was just no game plan. It was just let's let's get going here. Yeah, like what do you like? We get, what do you game plan? So Jim used to do this thing. You know, he'd list the scouting report or whatever. And you know, he, so we did the same thing. But it was like scouting report. Okay, this guy. Okay, hits well cross. Hits well line. Good passer. Good blocker. And I was like. <laughs> Okay, coach, what's the plan here? Like, how do we... This guy's very good. How are we going to stop This guy's good. That was like one to six. The game plan, setter, great setter, like, distributes it well, fast offense. We're like, coach, like... And so when when the game plan looks like that, it's like, okay, well, we're not going to, like, outsmart this team. We've got to try to fold them up or just play better or something. And so that's where you see all the, let's go! Because it's like, we're not... We're going to, like, oh, yeah, they're they're doing this, that. No, No, let's just go. Come on. Which is, that's fun. Awesome. And yeah, just to wrap up that year in Nationals, playing against Reed, you didn't get a chance to play against your little brother much because obviously you attended the same high school. The club difference, I don't think his team really got to play against yours unless there was practices, but with the two, there was two age groups between you, so you wouldn't mm-hmm. ever see each other. Yeah, never. Um, so what was it like playing against your little brother? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't that big a deal, actually, which uh, a lot of people have asked me that, like, oh, yeah, you played your brother in the final. I was like, well, that season for us was like, you know, like they were a great team and their team wasn't really about him. Like he was a great contributor, but they were a team, right? Where, and so like playing them, it wasn't like he and I were going head to head or anything. Like right, he was right. just playing and like I knew uh, he was good, but it wasn't like, you know, and he doesn't bug me about it, like about beating me. <laughs> Cause like he knows, like it was just the, the situation was at what it was like. It was a team who had had to work so hard to get there, playing a team who really should have been there. And so, like, you know, it was what it was. Uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't really that big a deal playing him. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Nice. I think, yeah, people really wanted a story out of that one. But now that I think back, like, 
they had Riley Barnes and uh, uh, Brett Walsh was setting. Like they yeah. had a really stacked team. Yeah. You're right. The the outcome wasn't just on Reed's shoulders. He was contributing, yeah. but like it yeah. wasn't like we were serving Reed and he was digging me up every time and like he totally dominated me. Like we weren't even really I don't know libero and left side. Like do you? He maybe dug me a few times, but like I mean yeah like. I don't really think there was much of a story there. Definitely, definitely. So let's circle back to this Beach World Championship because, like you said, you were summer of grade 12 going into your first year, and you actually won U21 Worlds, which I think is your third or fourth youth Worlds because you would have played with Sidgwick. That was my fourth. So c- count it down with me. You would have started with Sidgwick in yeah. actual U19. So my first was with Will Sedgwick in U19, and then I played with Dan Deering in that same year in Blackpool, England, the U21. Okay, and you were Canada, Canada 2 that year, Yeah, right? and we lost, to, we lost to, I think, Evandro no way. in the qualifier, I think. I can't remember. I know it was a Brazilian team, but I think it was Evandro in the qualifier. Um, and then the next year, I trained all year with Nick Del Bianco, um, who I think is still playing pro indoors. Um, if not, he might have recently yeah, stopped because like, I think he's back helping Trinity. But yeah, a guy who played yeah. and and he yeah. and I trained all year. He came to Toronto and we were going nineteen U hard, right? And then uh, we came fourth at the U nineteen, missed out on a medal. It's tough, and so I didn't even, wasn't even expecting that year to go to U twenty one. And Schachter was going to go with Dan Deering, and then Dan was like two hundred to go, so Schachter's like, oh well, Garrett, why don't, do you want to do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, of course. I'm going to go. So that was how it came together. And how soon before the tournament was this? It was like a month. Oh, my gosh. That it was like a month because U19 was in, uh, like, late July. And yeah. then the U21 was in September-ish, early September. So it was like one month. We didn't even – we played nationals together, but there was not a lot of training or planning or anything. It just happened. How does a world championship just happen? Well, when you get guys like Garrett May and Sam Schachter on the same team, <laughs> good things happen. What do you remember about Turkey that year? I remember everything, man. What are you talking about? That was crazy. That was my second time in Turkey as well. Because um, the year before, the U19s was there. I remember everything, Did man. you guys talk about expectations before going? Yeah, absolutely. Did you, was, your, was Sam on the same page? Did you guys get off the flight knowing you're going to win Worlds? I don't, I don't think he did. And I would say this to him if he was here. I think he was surprised that we won. I remember there was a moment after we won because my dad and Mark Heese were there with us. Mark Heese was my coach all that year. Um, and my dad was there as my parent, but also as my coach. And so that was kind of our little foursome. And Leonard was there as well, but he was just kind of there as the Volleyball Canada. Our, it was like the four of us. And I can remember like after we got back to the room after winning and all that, we got back, we were getting changed to go for dinner or whatever. And I can just remember seeing him sitting on the, uh, sorry, Sam, I'm telling this story if you don't want me to, sitting on the, like, the deck or the porch or whatever, and just kind of, like, blank stare, like, kind of in shock, it looked like. And maybe it was him realizing how good he could be, or I don't know, because he was the best player in the world at that time. Right? Like, he just went and showed that he was the best player, and they served him every ball. He was the best blocker in the tournament, like, so I don't really think he expected it, which is crazy. Because for me, it was like, yeah, we, we were going to do it. What do you mean? Of course we did it. I should have won the U19. Of course I'm going to win the U21. With Shaq here? Yeah, let's go. So that was really interesting. How did this goal setting come along? Because to you, it almost seems like common sense. Like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to win the tournament. Why else are we going? But 
I think to other people, like, do you get upset when one of the teams you're coaching says, oh, we want to make quarters? Like, how did you get this goal setting? How do you stay strong and connected to it when sometimes the results aren't coming? Like, somebody might sound crazy if they're like, oh, I, I didn't win U19 Worlds, but I'm going to win U21 this year. Like, in the same summer, a month later. Like, Yeah, I've had a lot of people, like, ask me about that because everything that I step into, I set my expectations very high, sometimes unreasonably, honestly. And I think, like, you need to have some sort of basis and reasoning for how you could, like, you have to see a path to that goal, right? So, like, for me, you know, Nick and I were a team, and we, if we had to play better, we would have won the U19. The U21 wasn't that much harder. Like, the team who we, so Cantor Losiak won the U19 the year that I played, and they were in the U21. Like, it was, there's not a big difference there, right? So it was like, I could see the path. It was like, well, I was a great player at this tournament. Why can't I be a great player at this tournament? You know, but if if you can't see the path, (laughs) then like, it's probably not going to happen for you. So to set a goal, like, for me right now, like, oh, I'm going to be the prime minister of Canada. Well, I don't see the path. That's not like, you know what I mean? Like, but for me to say, you know, I'm going to go and, be the coach of the year in the college league, or I'm going to go and be a director at a video game company someday. Like I can see that path. And so of course I would expect to do it. I can see how it's going to happen. And from an early age, like that crush team, right? It was like, we set a goal and we did it. And so you shouldn't be surprised when you plan to do things and then they happen. So like, that's kind of been my whole career. And so, yeah, I do get mad at people when, when they, like, when my teams say for their goals, like, you know, yeah, let's be a top three team. What? What do you mean be a top three team? Like, if you're terrible, that's a great goal. But if you're half decent, of course, why? What do you mean top three? Win. So you're saying you're going to make the semi and then lose it because you only plan to be a top three team? Come on. Like, if you're there, if you could make it there, you couldn't win. Right? So, like, plan for that. So where, what would you say to, I, th- I think the buzzword it would now would be like process, like the Philadelphia 76ers, they think if they do everything in their power, the, the outcome takes care of itself, or they don't want to say they're going to be NBA champions, they're going to take care of the process, where you're willing to say, you're willing to write it down, put it on the wall and say, I'm going to be a world champion. Yeah. Like, how does your process, how do you connect that to practice? Like, what would a practice with Marquise look like? You said he was your coach. Like, are you connected to winning worlds a Tuesday afternoon of practice? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, and, and that's probably the thing I maybe take for granted is, like, everybody's got their own thing that makes them special. Like, for me, I was, like, one of my weaknesses is, like, proactivity. Like, setting practice times and, like, doing that was always my worst skill. Like, when I played with Dan, we barely practiced because I was lazy and didn't set up practice. But when I was at practice, I was at practice. Like, I was focused, intense, to get there to get better, practicing like I'm trying to like I'm trying to win. And so, yeah, absolutely. We're connecting with that goal. Like, and it, it's not something that was always said verbally, but it was certainly something that was said a lot. Like, Hey, we're preparing to be the world champions every day. Pretty much. You say that in practice. Like, so there, when you're in practice, yeah, if you don't have a great one, fine, but it's not like you've forgotten that you're here trying to prepare to be the best in the world. And so what that needs to look like, it just, I think it frames how you build up your day and your practice and all that. Yeah, like, if, if you don't mind, let's take a deep dive into that. Because speaking to Marquise, off the record, I hope to get him on the show soon. He was big in, like, journaling and mindful notes and making sure that, like, we were going to win practice today. Like, there was, 
there was nothing he was going to leave to chance. Like, did he kind of pass that on to you? Or how do you he, how he, do you make sure you don't go through the motions and just show up? Because, like, being a beach player, sometimes you're practicing with the same group over and over again. Sometimes the weather's good. Sometimes the weather's bad. Your Ashbridge is probably on the same court. Like, how do you not just get into, like, a monotone routine at that point, right? Yeah, he tried to he tried really hard to help me with that. And, and a lot of it stuck. But some of the stuff that he was very good at is stuff that's just not really me. Like, he did a – he was – was great with preparation and that's something that's been stuck with me like not necessarily preparation like preparation the 20 minutes before practice say like what are you doing 20 minutes before practice like or even in your pepper in warm-up are you just going through the motions like are you just roll shot like or are you peppering with the intent to be the best in the world you know what i mean like are you sure are you setting up the net with the intent to be the best in the world was something that that was super beneficial and, and has definitely stuck with me but he tried to do the notes and things like that and I'm the type of guy that like it just never stuck for me like my, he does the mindful morning notes and that's fantastic but for me I just forget or I do it but it could it could stay in my head like I didn't need to write it down I just had it there um, you know it's like some people make practice plans and write it down so it's there I, ne- I never write that down. I make a practice plan, but I don't need to write it down. It's just there. I just have it. And so that, that's kind of... So I, I, we worked on that stuff a little bit, but, yeah, I mean, I was very thankful to have him. And I find I pop off a bunch of things that he used to say and my dad used to say, and uh, every coach, really, you, you take something with you. Do you remember an example of, like, when either you or a teammate or even teams you're coaching have veered off path? Like, I think it's easy to, like puff your chest in and say, we're going to win provincials this year. But like I said, bringing it back to like the practice environment, when somebody gets off path, are you just reminding them? Like if they buy in, they should be able to self-police it. But what happens when somebody's just not bringing their all today? Like whether they had a bad day at school or they broke up with their boyfriend or their girlfriend or something's a distraction. How do you make sure when they're between those lines of practice, like it's, it's game on and they're locked in? I don't have a great answer. Like, <laughs> because like as a teammate, it's not your responsibility, right? Like, as a teammate, it's not my job to make sure, especially in indoor, it's not my responsibility to make sure that my teammate's doing okay and bringing his best, right? I've got to bring mine. And if, I, if he's distracted, but then I get involved in his distraction, now we're both distracted, right? So, and there were times that I was definitely distracted. In my third year at Western specifically was one of my best statistical years and probably the best, one of the best teams that I was ever on but I was probably the worst teammate I've ever been. Um, I was caught up in my ego about getting my stats and being the guy and really came down to it. Like that was a year and the, you know, that was a year that we really could have meddled at nationals and we really could have, you know, done some damage. But I, I was, you know, I, I'd get frustrated if my setter would set somebody else, I'd turn away from the team instead of like coming in and supporting my teammates, right? So I was distracted. I was a terrible teammate. Had I been a better teammate, would we have won? Maybe, right? And so, sure, it happens, but you just got to keep moving. So you're saying when this is at maximum capacity, everybody's coming to work, and they're focused on themselves and what they're bringing, right? So you don't need to get on teammates and do the whole, like, Disney movie and give a great speech and all that stuff. Everybody needs to take care of what they need to take care of. Like, the Bill Belichick, do your job thing. Well, right? like, with adults, absolutely, yeah. right? Like, these are people who are adults. Like, when you're talking about men and women, like, they're managing their own stuff. You have to be. With kids, the, you know, the coach and, and leaders can help them with that, man, learn to manage their own things. 
But when you get into university or pro or whatever, like everybody's managing their own stuff. So like I, I, it's a full-time job managing my emotional and my stuff. Right. And about being a, a bad teammate, like it wasn't like that affected my team in a negative way. It might've, but I played worse because of it. Right. Like you just know you're a bad teammate. You're being, you're being not great to your teammates. So it affects the way you play as well. Right. So like, you know, could somebody have yelled at me or said something to me? Would that have made it better? I don't know. <laughs> like, so nobody addressed it the year no. you identified it first? No, nobody's or? ever told me that I was a terrible teammate. But, and maybe I was not as bad as I'm saying, but, like, I, looking back now, is like, if I had been more bought into the team, more committed to the team's success, and not committed to leading the league in kills per set, then we might have meddled. Was that a conscious stat you had going into that year? Like you told yourself, I want to lead the league in kills? Well, I knew that I wanted to be the best player in the country. And that was one of my goals. And like, how do you do that? I'm paying attention to who's getting awards and, and these things. And it was a very selfish thing to think about, right? Truly, like, why am I not focused on as much on winning? I mean, I was, but that year I was just caught up in it, right? And because I was good enough to do that, I, yeah, I led the league in points. But my team finished second in Ontario, no different than the year before. And we finished fourth at Nationals, which is like, you had two chances to win a medal. So, like, what good is having the highest score if you're not going to get results, right? And so, like, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it, at, the, it, at the time, I can't really say what I was thinking. But looking back, I know I wish I had somebody there to to help me or if I could have better managed it myself, I, I think things would have been different. Interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's, let's switch back to the beach stuff. Cause I mean, it's a volleyball show, but really I, I could talk about beach all day. <laughs> so you graduate Western, you're already a world champion. Was there a big jump? You mentioned the jump from U19 to U21. It's kind of the same, the same teams are there and the same teams are being competitive. Was it different playing against men when you got to the world tour? Like people who play for a living? Yeah, it, it was different. Um, for one big reason, I think, and this is kind of understated, I think, when people think about pro athletes, and when you watch sports on television, you actually don't see this either, which is interesting. It's like, these people you're competing against every tournament are the most competitive people in the world. So think about the most competitive person you know. These people you're competing against are more competitive, <laughs> right? Like, and that's every single match you play. You know, you play in an OVA tournament on the beach, and how many competitors are out there? Maybe one, two? Maybe you get a nice final where guys are scrapping it out, but most of the time it's like, you know, this guy's playing to have fun or whatever, which is great. <laughs> but the jump is like to men, these are adults who are putting their life on the line. They, they've got skin in the game. It, it, these guys are competitors. Like, I'm not a fighter. I'm not a tough guy. But I almost got in a fight in a match. Like, how does that make sense? It's because that's the level of compete that are in these guys. And it's, it, it, it wasn't shocking because I'm also a competitor. So it wasn't like I, I was surprised. But it was overwhelming. Just that every single game you play is a fight. And... <laughs> so like, you know, getting ninths and sevenths and fifths or whatever, it's like, I get why people take satisfaction in that 
because like you had to win four games and four competitive tough games right but like we don't play to come fifth right you play to win and to do that you got to win seven seven of the hardest like every time and so that's it's just a lot right it's a lot to deal with and in beach volleyball specifically more than other sports it's like tennis more like tennis than it is like indoor volleyball like think in tennis like think of how many competitors are out there you got guys who are 250th who come out and are scrapping with the number one guy in the world right in indoor like it's a team game they share it but in the beach it's the two guys and they are tough as nails so that was overwhelming and, and something I think like we miss in Canada to be honest.